0: Welcome to the Wolf's Den. My name is Mark Ottobre. Today's guest, if there was a Hall of Fame for contributions to the health, fitness, and bodybuilding uh, arena, this man would have a picture hanging high on the wall. He is the founder and owner of six gyms, Doherty's Gym. His brand and apparel is worn by bodybuilders, athletes, and celebrities all over the globe. He is the president of the IFBB Pro League, and he's the business partner with the one, the only, and probably the most recognizable man on the planet, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Please give a warm welcome to Tony Doherty. Thank you. So Tony, we, we met 13 years ago, and I remember I was a kid, I was 20 years old, and I called you up and basically called up the gym and said, hey, I wanna speak to Tony. And lo and behold, you got on the call, And I said, mate, I want to compete. Can you coach me? And you said, yes, that was 13 years ago. The rest is history. The first time I walked into Doherty's gym and we will jump around in this interview uh, a fair bit. But the first time I met you uh, going into Doherty's in Brunswick, the only way I can explain it being a 20 year old kid, it was a Disneyland for bodybuilders. And uh, what I want to start with is, was that always your intent to create something that was comparable to the Mecca of bodybuilding, which was previously known as, you know, Gold's gym in Venice Beach? Yeah, pretty much. You know, I,
1: I went to um, Gold's Gym in Venice Beach in, I think it was 1991, 1990, 1991 for the first time. And I still had my gym in, in Bendigo, country of Victoria, which was my first gym. Um, and I walked in there, it was a little bit like you walking into Doherty's for the first time, it was like me walking into Disneyland. And uh, I looked around, I saw the, you know, the big guys that had seen the magazines training, and I saw this incredible atmosphere and all these pictures up on the wall, all this history. And I thought, yeah, you know, we don't have anything like that in Australia. And I want to bring this one day to Australia. So when I, uh, th- that's sort of how the vision started. And, and it was even more, like I went over there knowing that it was uh, the destination point for all young bodybuilders and you had, to, you had to go there to experience it. But it was probably even more than I could have imagined. Because you can't, from pictures, and back then it was just magazines, there was no internet, but from pictures you can't quite understand an atmosphere, right? You can look at something and go, oh, it looks pretty cool. But when it's a feeling. I remember when I walked in there for the first time and I, and I took uh, an Australian bodybuilder by the name of Sonny Schmidt. So when I started promoting, he was the first um, guy that I kind of brought into the, to the fold because he wanted to be a professional. I thought I had the tools to get him there, which I did. And um, I took him to his first, uh, first competitions in America. So we went and hung out at Gold's for quite a few weeks and uh, stayed at this place called the Marina Pacific Hotel, which was also kind of a destination point and uh it was more than i could have imagined and because we went in there together and you know he had a bit of a following and i was coming up in this sport they treated us really well so we got a little bit of sort of sponsorship sort of status and they
0: gave us some clothes and let us train for free and it was just super cool so just on that i mean you essentially what you did was you bottled atmosphere in in essence you went and you saw the mecca you saw the atmosphere and that's what you wanted to recreate in you looking at that atmosphere was there something specific that you go right that's the X factor that I need to bottle and bring back to Australia.
1: No, um, I wouldn't say there was anything specific. I'd say it was a number of things that made it s-
0: specific. Does that make sense? Was there anything that you thought, right, um, this is that you emulated or tried your best to emulate? No, what, what, honestly, what I tried to do is to do it better. And I
1: know that sounds kind of cocky, but I looked at it and I thought, okay, this is, um, this is really good. Um, and it's, it's more than I imagined. I, I guess I went there the first time and thought I was just overwhelmed, wow. Then the next time I went there, like a year later, I thought it had softened off a little bit. Then I went there two years later and it had started to become very corporate. And that was probably where I really did bottle, okay. It was, what I saw in 91, 92 was way better than I saw in 94, 95. And I think if they had kept going in that direction, they could have actually got better at it. Instead, they got bought out by a corporate um, firm and started trying to please the masses. And I thought, you know what? I'm gonna keep going in the direction they were headed in and they're probably a year away from achieving what I'd already seen. And it sounds cocky to go to the greatest gym in the world and say I can do it better, but I did. And so I came back um, to build my brand here. And you know, at first um, I thought about doing Gold's Gym in Australia. And, and I, I, the guy that sponsored us over there was the international franchise manager, a guy called Rich Minzer, who I'm still friends with now. And he offered it to me, but it would have cost like about 30,000 bucks or something to buy the licensing and I would have had it for. But I, I didn't have 30 bucks, let alone $30,000. I couldn't have imagined. And I looked at World Gym. and I looked at Powerhouse Gym. And I looked at all these big brands because I knew you kind of had to have a brand. And I couldn't have afforded any of them. Even if they had given it to me, I couldn't have paid the first month, you know. But I'd been promoting bodybuilding for a few years. You know, Tony Doherty Presents. I thought, oh, people kind of know my name. I'm going to do Doherty's Gym. And then I don't have to play the company line or worry about someone changing direction or I can be me. And once I knew that, I thought, right, now
0: this is what I'm going to build. And I had a very clear vision um, of building what, I, what I've done. When you talk about doing it better, was, is this a specific example that probably come to mind that you thought, right, well, this is where they kind of dropped the ball? Or was it more the, the culture that started and then kind of went to the corporate that you... It was
1: more that it was more avoiding the sellout, you know, um, avoiding the... The membership consultants you know where, where i remember when i went back there one year i couldn't tell you what year and they put in these little booths where the membership consultants sat with their friggin' body shirts and school shoes and i thought that's not a gym man that's i never want to do that i never want to have a call center i never want to have my people sitting around doing telemarketing and having a dickhead in a body shirt you know and i hate that because i travel a lot now like I'm, I'm actually on the road about six months of the year sometimes more and I'm um, doing all the Arnold stuff. So wherever I am, I go look for gyms. And I always want to find a gym, you know, not, not a, a fitness center or a fitness first or, a, you know, whatever. But sometimes that's the only choice. And whenever I go into one of those kind of gyms, I'm like, hey, can I train? And they're like, yeah, it's like a million dollars for a casual workout, Euro. <laughs> I think it's like 30 bucks Euro, you know, to have a, a workout for an hour. I'm like, man, all right, I didn't want
0: to. So just, just on that, when, when we first met, it was 13 years ago, Uh, to life has certainly changed for me in a big way. I mean, back then I was single, no kids. The only worry that I had in the world was where my next meal was coming from. Uh, Contrast to you 13 years ago, I think it was 2015, Um, I I remember briefing catch-ups that we've had, there was something around you bankruptcy almost or or you really had to pull it out and um, turn things around and and to come to see where you're at now. I mean, if someone tapped you on the shoulder back then and said, hey, Tony, keep working hard back in 2005, you know, mate, you'll get there, you'll be, you'll achieve everything in your wildest dreams and then some and and eventually be business partners with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, I mean, what was going on? First of all, I know that's quite a big question, but first of all, what was going on for you in 2005?
1: Right, I answered, but I'll just finish where I was going because someone was looking straight at me with that question. With the corporate thing was what I didn't like was when I go into gyms when I'm traveling and have people say, before you can even have a workout, we'll get you a membership consultant and you need to sit down and, and have a little interview before you can even see the gym and then oh, do you have a credit card. And I hate that side of the industry so much that I thought, I want to be everything that's not that. I want people to come and go, hey, can I train? there? Yeah, 10 bucks, go. That's the end of the conversation. So that's that. So back to, so 2005, when we first met, um, you know, from the, from the outside looking in, you'd think, oh, this guy's starting to go all right. You know, the gym, we'd sort of taken over the whole building where we're at, or not what we've got now, but the, the whole of the building in Western Street. We'd been open 24 hours for seven years then, um, which everybody said was gonna fail and was impossible. And there still wasn't a lot of 24-hour gyms there. Um, but I didn't have the Expos, I didn't have the other gyms. Um, I wasn't doing the speaking tours and all that sort of thing. I hadn't you know, partnered up with Arnold. So I'd just done my, five, fourth, um, pro show, um, Australian Pro, which is now the third longest running show in the world. But back then it was just like the one that everyone said would fail, oh well, this won't last.
0: It's the Arnold, the uh, Olympia, and right?
1: Well, well, yeah, the, the Olympia's been going the longest and the Arnold Columbus has been going now 30 years and, and I'm in my 18th or 19th year with the Australian, Australian Pro, yeah. So that's, um, you know, when I started it, look, everything I've done, everyone said it was gonna fail. Whether it was uh, the first 24 hour gym, when I moved to Melbourne to do a bodybuilding gym, I said, that'll fail. I'm like, well, thanks, I'm gonna do it anyway. And then when I moved into Western Street and went 24 hours and threw away the keys and said, we're gonna be staffed all the time, everyone said that'd fail. Then when I did the pro bodybuilding, everyone said that would fail. Then when I said I was going to do Fitex and build this fitness expo bigger than anything else in Australia, of course they said it would fail. And then when Arnold approached me, I said we're going to swap it now into the Arnold, Arnold Classic and then the Arnold Sports Festival. Again, the same people. That can't work. You know, so you've, I've really learned that. You've got to take advice, but at the same time, stick to your guns and do what you know in your heart and what your passion is and follow it and make it work. And, and one thing I've learnt, Mark, sort of one of my more famous sayings, it took me a long time to get my head around this, and we're digressing a little bit, but it's we all have this habit of doing things to prove people wrong, right? starts with your family, your brother and sister go, oh, you're shit, you know, you're not going to grow your muscles, and you're like, well, I'll show you, I'll do it to prove you're wrong, and you're doing a million curls and all these sit ups and things. Um, and then it might be your peers, and it might be your, your mum, dad, some someone. and. All the time, one, we worry about what people think, which we shouldn't do. But two, we kinda wanna do things to prove people wrong. And I had this revelation only the last few years that where the, the, the essence of it lies is you're almost there. It's not that, it's do it to prove yourself right. So I always had this thing when people said you can't do it. I'm not like, oh, I'm gonna prove you wrong. It's like, yeah, you know what? I know I can do this and I appreciate your concern. And a lot of people you hear this, especially with the internet age, Of us, oh, they're all haters. They're not. Most of them love you. They just don't want to see you get hurt or fail or, or experience loss or sadness and all this kind of thing. So they say, oh mate, just take it easy. We just, don't, you know, we just want you to, to be okay and not to, to fail, but you need to fail to, to grow, right? So always have these advisors and people say you can't do it and, and, and I wanted to prove them wrong at first. Now, no, I know where the truth is. Just do it to prove yourself right. Because if they really do hate you, and you win and you get it right, they still hate you, they hate you more. <laughs> and if you fail, they're gonna be the first ones going, ah, I told you so, right? So why would you wanna prove someone like that wrong? When they don't, sw- um, I was trying not to swear. When they don't give a shit about you, why would you care what they think? And this controls so many things that we do, worrying about approval of others. So learn to ignore that. So back to 2005, man, yeah. I I thought I was going okay, but the problem was I was never a good bookkeeper. Was never good at doing budgets and all that sort of thing. I thought, oh, the gym's busy, we must be going okay. But we'd gone into an overdraft, I'd still had this debt. So, uh, and I'm really open about this, I just don't lie. Which is probably why my speaking stuff kind of working because I'm not on a pedestal saying I'm better than anyone. I'm just one of you guys made more mistakes. But when I moved from Bendigo in 1994, I'd mortgaged my parents' house, or they had, to finance my first gym, which I paid, now that I know the industry, three times more than what it was actually worth. And I left there with $250,000 debt in 1994, a truckload of broken equipment. I didn't have a, a single thing in the world. I had a garbage bag of clothes. I slept on the couch at the gym for nearly a year. I had three possessions. I had a rice cooker, a couch, not a flash one, just a couch, and, uh, and, and a vertical grill. You know those grill- they look like a toaster and you put chicken breasts in them? One of them and a, a garbage bag, I did not even have a suitcase, garbage bags with my clothes in it. And I'd close the gym at night, wait for everyone to leave and I'd hide in the car park behind a tree because this is before we were 24 hours. And I've told you this story before. And then I'd get up in the morning and have a shower. I'd go up to McDonald's because I opened at 5.30 and we opened at six and I'd get a coffee and a newspaper because I had my dignity and I didn't want to tell people I was. Effectively homeless, and I slept at the gym every night. So I'd go and get a coffee and a paper, and walk back to the door where they were now waiting to get in. Six o'clock in the open, and get there at five to six. Good morning, everyone, as if I'd came from somewhere, my imaginary home, and I did that for nearly a year, because that's what sometimes you have to do to make a business work, and to not say, to people, oh, "Poor me," you know. So I thought that was the hardest time I went through. Then forward, one to 2005, you know, I was in more debt. And that $250,000 debt had blown out. But what I can tell you, and I haven't told you this, is in April this year, I got a call from my long suffering dad, (laughs) who's been with me through all of this. He's now my, um, he retired, he's 77 now. So he retired at 65 and went full time with my companies as our um, CFO accountant. He controls our accountants and so on. And uh, he called me up in April. He goes, oh, you never asked me, you know, um, day-to-day questions about the accounts. He goes, oh, listen, I just want to transfer this money from the gym, gym whatever, because there's 12 accounts, up, from the I think it was a Brunswick gym account. Um, do you think we can afford to, to put some money across? You've been drinking, what are you talking about? He said, oh, it's $39 I need to transfer. I said, what you calling me that for? He goes, because it's the last payment on that loan. And that loan from 1994, I paid off this year. So you know, you've got to be patient. People think it's an easy role or you know, you've know you got so many gyms or you're traveling and seeing the world, you, you, you're rolling in money. It's not always the case. And 2005 was a real wake up time. Remember when you came in, um, that we thought we were going okay. And it was like, i have got to do some other stuff or we, we're going to get hit, we're going to sink.
0: So that's when I started to reinvent myself and reinvent the brand even more and, and just keep at it. So what were some of the things that you were sprung into action? You thought, all right, we're not doing so well, then what, what does Tony do? In the, in the mind of Tony, Right, he sees the, the red light that's flashing. What, what does he do? Well, it's what you do and what you don't do. So what you do with any business,
1: you have to look at reducing costs. There's, there's two things, you either reduce your costs or you increase your income. So I'd always do a little bit of both. So I'd so say, well, look, I, I'm not doing as many hours as I, will, so, as I was. So I'll get back on the books, doing some hours and filling in some gaps at weekends and evenings and things like that. Um, I'll start, you know, um, working more on internal promotions to get people to bring their friends into the gym because we still didn't want to do telemarketing or mainstream um, uh, advertising that kind of thing and just work on some some new twists with the brand, some new twists with the clothing and just have a good look at everything so you kind of put everything under the microscope and go oh we're losing money on this and we're making money on that well why don't we put
0: more energy into that so if someone tapped you on the shoulder in 2005 and said hey tony you will one day be the business partners with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Was, was that believable back then? Absolutely. Absolutely, I've believed it all my life. It's, it's a crazy thing. But when I
1: believe in something, when I, when I get this fixation in my mind that um, I'm gonna do something, I, I I'm, I'm absolutely um, believe it. And I, I always have this thing, Mark, that you've got to visualize something and believe that it's true for it to happen. And you've got to dream really big. Because if you, if you dream small or medium because you're worried about what people think, well, guess what? Guess what's the most you can get? So if you dream of having, I don't know, a cafe with 10 chairs. You oh, that's my dream. Well, you're never gonna have 20 chairs in your cafe, right? You're gonna have 10 and it's gonna be, wow, I'm satisfied. So I've always set the bar really, really stupidly high. And I figure if I just do everything I can to achieve that and I fall a little bit short, it's still pretty big, right? Or, if I fail and I don't achieve that dream, at least I, I have no regrets. I can die knowing I tried my absolute best. So I've always wanted to, to be like Arnold and to know Arnold, to work with him. And I, I remember going to the first, this sounds nuts. I've had this conversation with Jim Lorimer who, I will tell you about Jim Lorimer, but I met him in, I guess I went to the first Arnold in 1991. So I'd been going for about three years. And I went with a few mates from Australia and we walked in and everyone was like, oh, wow. Look at all the hot chicks. Oh, wow, look at all the free shit they're giving out. Oh, wow, look at the bodybuilders. And I walked in there and went, wow, I'm gonna bring this to Australia one day. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. One day we're gonna have Arnold Classic Australia. I don't know how, when. One day I'm gonna do a professional expo. And I got to have a minute with Jim Lorimer, who was in his 60s then. And he he said, I said, have you got time for a question? He goes, one question, what is it? You know, he's just, I never met anyone like him. And I go, oh, one question. Wow. When did you start working on next year's one? And he goes, Monday morning, and walked off. And I, and I, was, I was like a kid, I was probably, what, 25 or so. And I'm like, hey. so I think I want to do this, but I'm, I knew I wasn't mature enough to put 365 days straight into something. I knew that I was not capable of working 100 days straight. I was still one of those nine to five, not nine to five, but you know, you have weekends off kind of guys. And it was some years later when I realised, okay, if you really want that dream, you've got to bite down. Stop messing around and commit yourself fully. So when I started FIDEX in 2000, was that 2011? um, Well, I was probably ready in about 2009, but I couldn't get the venues, like all the things didn't line up, but I knew what I had to do. I was ready to work harder than ever I had before. And I think doing the pro show taught me that, working, producing something with no money, no budget and no hope and still making it work. So when I went into my first expo, I, I remember those words from Jim Lorimer saying, you're going to have to work for 300 days straight. And I did, you know? And, I, and then as that turned into the Arnold and I got to meet Arnold and everything else, that was the only thing I could promise him was so I'll just outwork everyone. And, and it always stuck with me. But <coughs> people you know, think you're too old to try something. And I do a little bit of mentoring work with younger people, some older people. And of course, saying, oh yeah, but I missed my chance. Just check this out. Jim Lorimer, just t- in October, he's turning 92. All right, he started the Arnold Classic when he was 62. He retired and he'd been doing, promoting some shows with Arnold for a few years, on and off, and they had this idea to do the Arnold Classic. He goes, oh, I'm ready to go. What about you, Arnold? Can you keep up? And he still goes to work every day. He's still got a car and everything, he's 92. So we just had our 30th Arnold Classic. And that's what it hit me. I'm like, hey, you're 90 something. And just did those 30 years. You started it when you were 60, man. You built the biggest multi-sport festival in the world. 10 times bigger than the Olympic games and started when you were 60.
0: So just, just keep that in mind if ever you're feeling a little bit sorry for yourself or a little bit like you missed your chance, never. So the Arnold Classic feels almost like a 20 year game of chess, moving the pieces very strategically, methodically and just me? yeah, and waiting Absolutely. time and going right and seeing that big vision. And I think I just want to make a point on that for those listening and those watching in that, you know, things don't happen overnight. That, that's a 20 year example that you've got to put your ducks in the row and what you do today will affect the you know, downward stream of, you know, what happens 20 years from now. Absolutely. And beyond that, you've got to be ready for your opportunity when it comes. So it's one thing to have
1: big dreams, and ideas and ideals and all this kind of thing. But if you're not ready, and you haven't done that diligence and put that thousands of hours of thought into something, then you're gonna get bypassed. So when I saw, um, to give you an idea of the strategy, when Arnold um, finished being governor in 2011, he said, I'm gonna take this fitness crusade worldwide. He said, I'm gonna take it to every continent. And I went, ding, I've got this FedEx I've just started. I'm gonna build this, my first thought, I'm gonna build this into the biggest and best fitness expo, multi-sport expo, kind of mimicking the Arnold in the world. Pardon me. So that when he looks at Australia, I'm his only choice. I'm gonna be that guy no matter what, right? I'm not gonna miss this opportunity. And when I get that call, I'm gonna say, I'm ready. I'm so ready. I was born ready. I've been waiting for this all my life. Where do I sign up? So I put myself in that position. So he went first from the USA, he said, my first one's going to be in Spain and we're going to do one in Europe, we've chosen Spain because he filmed Conan the Barbarian there, which was his breakout movie. And he had a great affinity to Spain and he lived there for six months um, working outside of Madrid. So that was a no brainer. I'm thinking, I wonder what he's going to do next. He said, South America's our next one. And he, he'd smartened up by then him and Jim and they decided to, uh, and then by then Bob Lorimer, Jim's son was putting all the internationals together. And he said, well, we found this couple in, um, these partners in Brazil, but they've already got an expo. And Arnold, because he's the smartest guy I've ever met. He goes, well, that's a lot easier than doing a startup one. Why don't we just brand it over to be an Arnold Classic? And we've already got, they wrote, how many people are they are getting They said, Well, they're getting 30,000 now. He goes, well, imagine putting my name to it, what it can be. So they turned that into an Arnold Classic and went from 30,000 to 50 or 60,000 the first year. And when he was there doing the first Brazil one, someone sent me this link of him doing his speech. He goes, the next continent we're gonna do is Australia. I'm like, oh my God, this is finally it, you know. But of course, I haven't heard from them, I haven't met them. They, I don't even know if they know who I am. But I've been putting all the pieces in place with a lot of other things behind the scenes. So I thought, okay, now's our chance. He said, oh, the next one's going to be Australia. Like, oh shit! I hope they call me. <laughs> you know, I've been working all my life for it, and they did. But when they did, I was ready. So that's my point. You can have all these dreams in the world, and you can, and I tell you to dream big, and you have to. But you also got to be ready. Don't you think, oh, I'm just going to get lucky one day and you get the call and you get all nervous and go, oh, I'll think about it. Uh," They're going to go, next. And I'd I'd see it all the time when I do job interviews for people that come into my organisation. They come in undercooked, underprepared and lacking confidence. I see that as a weakness. Whereas if someone studies me, like one of the questions I ask when, um, because I've just started getting a little bit more involved in the the hiring and firing the hiring at the gyms because we got a couple of people in the system I didn't think really reflected me or my brand. I didn't represent me well when I wasn't there. So I said to my managers, listen, when you do this next lot of interviews, let me sit in. And one of the first things I said to them, what do you know about the gym? Tell me about my brand. And someone haven't got a clue. I'm like, you didn't even fucking Google it, right? Or they dress the wrong way. They don't understand it's a gym We're not a, we're not a health club. We're not a corporate organisation. So don't come in in a, you know, no offence, dressed like we are today. Or this one girl came in, she had so much makeup on, she looked like she was coming from a, a, a nightclub party and <clears throat> high heels. And then and the next one came in and she was dressed well, but she looked like a fitness, not like she just had a workout sweat, but you know, she had some you know, nice leggings or whatever and a gym looking stuff and not too much, like she looked like she was going to work in the gym. I'm like, you could start today. And the other one, like, well, you have to go home and change. <laughs> you know, it's little things like that. And we're all, we all have the ability to study psychology. And this is one thing I think I've been really pretty good at is, is working out the temperature in a room, going into a meeting, being able to work out what I need to say, what they need to hear. And so that's how the whole Arnold thing started, was me being prepared. And
0: then of course I got the call and that's another story. So going back there uh, in 2005, what advice perhaps would you have given yourself? What life lessons have you learned from 13 years that you thought, well, if I only did that back then, things would have been a lot easier? Ooh, you know
1: what? Uh, that's, that's a really hard one, Mark, because the first thing I'd say with advice would be to, um, to, to tell myself to just don't quit and to remind myself to be patient that it takes a long time to get good at shit and, and that you're going to make mistakes and it's okay. So uh, I probably wouldn't change a whole lot of stuff. You know, there's probably things that, it's always always very easy in hindsight to look back, oh, I would have done that different. But if you hadn't done it different, then you probably wouldn't end up where you were because you wouldn't have made the mistakes to teach you the life lessons you needed to learn. You know, so it's a kind of really, to, to me that's a really deep question because I don't know that I'd change a whole lot of things. But the advice I give myself would be to be patient and don't quit. And that's what I say to people all the time. You just summed up, so 20 years in the making, yes. 30 years to pay off a shitty loan, you made a mistake with yes. You know, 21 years is what I think is the cycle to succeed in any business that you gotta get your head around. 20, 21, 22 years, it really, really takes. And, and I often say to people now, I say, oh, look what you're doing. I go, yeah, it's been like a 30 year apprenticeship. I was a bit of a slow learner, but I finally got there. And I feel like now I'm just getting started. So I think back to that time in 2005, man, I was just learning the tricks that I needed to go forward. Um, Probably the one thing I've learned about people and staff and hiring and firing is, and one thing I probably would remind myself back then is to listen to your gut. Because there's quite a lot of times, even just recently where, I think we were talking about the other day, where I've had some people in one of my organisations that I knew had ran their race and were no good. And they weren't, being honest, they weren't delivering what I wanted them to deliver. And they were telling a few lies and this and that. And I always have this kind of thing that in my life, it's like baseball, three strikes, you're out. And when you're out with me, you're out. We're done. I'll delete your number. We're done, done, done. You know, if I see seen the street high, but that's, that's it. I'm not going to mentor you. I'm not going to help you out. I'm not going to, I'm not going to hate on you. I'm not going to talk behind your back cause I don't do that. There's nothing I wouldn't say to someone's behind someone's back. I wouldn't say to their face, but when we're done, we're done. And every time I've given someone that fourth opportunity or that one too many, it might be two, three, but whatever. That's, that's every time. What would I do that for when I already knew? When I already had the evidence and the feeling and the gut on this and, I, and I've let other people influence it. And I had my, um, one of my CEOs, one of my general managers with a particular employee go, oh, come on, you're even one more chance because damage control and this and that. And I go, no, I know this is no good. This is gonna hurt our organisation, it's gotta go. And I let them, right, I'm not blaming them because I allowed it, I let them say, talk me back. And then three months later, I'm like, oh, what did I do that for? So going back to 2005, it's that, it's knowing when to say no and when to cut people, when to say, you know what, I've bought you from the street, I've given you a million opportunities, I've given you everything, and you're not ready for this, it's time to go. And it might be, it might be a business that you have put money into where you just, your gut says, you know what, you're flogging a dead horse, kill it. It might, be, it might be a property, it might be gym, it might be investment, it might be a relationship. You yeah, it might be um, an employee thing. It's not just for employees, it's that gut thing. You know, so probably I'd tell myself that, just listen to your gut, because you, you write more times than you'd know. Mm,
0: absolutely, that's definitely uh, good advice. I know I have the same thing when uh, you, know, you always listen to your gut. Well, 95% of what uh, your is uh, serotonin at least, is made in your gut. So they call it the second brain for a reason, and um, you know, that, that is more than just a gut feeling. But just kind of switching a little bit, you spoke about Arnold before. When I think about the boyhood dream, I, the first thing that person that comes to mind is you. So, um, do you want to just taking us through that journey of? You know, I know you saw Arnold on TV before that. Were you you, you training? Were you lifting weights, or was it literally? No, that, I was a
1: kid. I was only right? a little kid. So I was like, I, I don't know. I was either 13 or 14, right? But um, this guy came on TV. It was, I think, it was the Mike Walsh show. Anyone else old enough to remember that? It was like a. Yeah, here we go. It was like a a variety house, like a Conan O'Brien or Letterman, you know, the Australian version. And I think it was him anyway. And I remember being at home and my dad was in the room, I can't remember, brother, sisters, whatever, but I remember seeing this guy and and I'm like, what the hell, what is that? You know, it was Arnold and he was flogging a book, promoting a book called Arnold, the education of a bodybuilder, you know, and uh, he was in Australia doing a tour. And I was like, wow, what is that? And my dad's like, oh, he's a bodybuilder. Listen up. So I listened to the interview and, and I saw not just the muscles. I mean, I wanted to, to be him straight away. I'm like, I want to have muscles like that. And I'm, dad, how do you get like that? And he goes, probably need to work out. And you're a, bit, you're a bit tubby. You probably want to learn about nutrition and you know, find out. But there's no, you can't Google it. Like back then it was like, you had to go to the library or whatever. I said, well, pardon me, my birthday or Christmas is coming up, can I get that book? In fact, I don't want anything else in the world. I just want that book. But all the other money, whatever you got into the other kids, just please, or I'll go find it. But I said, no, we'll get you the book for birthday, Christmas. Because my birthday's in November, Christmas is December, so I know it was around then. Anyway, all I wanted was that book. But when I look, and I go, Dad, what's that thing's in his arms? And he goes, oh, they're veins. I'm like, wow, because he had this paper thin skin. You know, it was at Arnold in the late 70s. He was just as good as he got. And I was like, wow. But it wasn't just the muscles that impressed this young, impressionable boy in this little country town. It was his confidence and his charisma. And the fact that he'd left Austria and taken on America. I'm like, I'm going to get out of this town. I knew. I knew. It, was, it was amazing to me looking back because I always knew I didn't want to be the same as everyone else when I was a little kid. I never bought what they were selling with education, university, qualifications. Always knew I didn't want to work nine to five or work in a a thing with fluorescent lights and those little shells. I saw a picture of that when I was a kid, and I'm like, you serious? You're gonna do your whole life doing that, all the money in the world, no. I'm smarter than that, I knew. But I didn't know what it was. And it was that day, this light went off, and I'm like, I'm gonna be a bodybuilder, and a promoter, and a gym owner. That's it. And my poor parents are like, but you know, we've gone without, so you could go to university. I said, that's nice, you got three other kids, put all the money into them. I don't even want pocket money anymore, I'm gonna hustle. I'm gonna work this shit out, get me the book. And it's funny, because you've been in my office yourself, collected everything from my whole life, all over the, except for that book, because I read it so many times that it fell to pieces. And I end up, I, I wish I hadn't, but I threw it out, because, oh, book. Um, because it felt it was in so many pieces, it didn't just fall to pieces, it fell in a hundred pieces. you know. And uh, it, it was just life changing for me. So I had this thing from the first time I saw Arnold, I, I'm gonna be like him. And then, you know, then that escalated. So i like, I wanna meet the guy one day. I read his book. I did bodybuilding, got all jacked up and, you know, became a gym, I thought, I'd like to meet Arnold. So that first time I went to the Arnold Classic in 91, you could pay an extra 50 bucks and get the VIP experience and have a picture with him. And I've still got the picture, it's up in my gym somewhere, of, um, of me meeting him. Now it wasn't very memorable for him because I was in a queue and this guy pushed me, I still remember, he catches you, he goes, how are you doing, fantastic, <laughs> click and he pushes you again. Someone else catches you and back then there was no digital. So the guy passes the Polaroid picture to the guy that pushes you out the door. As you go out the door, there's this big black guy who's the size of the door, gave me a picture frame, this cardboard picture frame. And in one hand I've got a frame, On the other hand I've got this thing, I'm shaking it like mad, hoping that the picture's gonna turn out, and it did. I'm like, I met Arnold, Ooh. I put it in a little folder in the album and took it back and it was my most cherished possession. So then, of course, you want more. I'm like, well, be cool to actually meet him, you know, and for him just to know, you know, I think the next ambition was for him just to know who I was. Just so one day he said, hey, Tony, or what, you know, like that with next level. Not even a friendship, just an acknowledgement. I was like, okay, this is next. So all my life I had this, you know, I, want, I want to meet him, I want to get a picture with him, I want him, I want to get to know him. And then that happened and, you know, and it escalated a bit more and then, when we met and became business partners, well, I'd like to be friends, you know, I'd like to smoke a cigar with him and go to restaurants and travel the world with him. And that's what happened. So it all started from just this uh, little kid with a big dream.
0: Amazing, absolutely amazing. You touched on something there about growing up in Bendigo. Now, um, we've spoken about parenting before, you've got four kids growing up in the suburbs, Um, you grew up in Bendigo, which is probably a very different, and also at the time, a very different uh, upbringing than what most kids, possibly who are watching this, um, might be—you know—comfortable in their their suburban kind of home and suburban life. What impact did growing up in a small country town in what was it 1970 or so? Yeah, ago? yeah.
1: Well, I was born in '64, so it was sort of—you know—I um, grew up in the '70s, I guess. You know, and. Uh, So what's the question?
0: So what, what impact did growing up on you? What, what do you feel that, what impact did it have on you growing up in that town? And is there something out of that that you feel kids today are missing? I mean, is it, is it a contributing factor for that? You know, that famous Tony Doherty, Iron Will, you know, uh, how how has it changed you? How has it developed you?
1: No, I don't think so because I I always had it.
0: You know, I think if you've got it, you've got it. Or if you make a decision
1: to to be that person to be obsessed and to chase your dreams you've got it with kids today or back then. Growing up in a country town, all that did was make me want to get the hell out of there. Made me, you know, I'd see everyone, when I was a kid, I'd see, um, you know, on a black and white TV and I'd see pictures of New York. I remember the start of Disneyland because it was like, we had two channels. We didn't have seven, uh, nine, 10 and the ABC. In the country towns you had the ABC and then this hybrid of the other three commercial stations. So we had like Disneyland, um, the Gilligan's Island, these kind of shows, you know, there was no Fox, there was no digital, there was nothing, no internet. So I'd see pictures of the USA as a kid. I'd go, oh, I just want to get out. I'd see pictures of New York City and pictures of Paris and London on TV. And all I wanted to do was to get out of this country town and to see the great cities of the world. I just always knew. But I think if I had grown up in a the city, then I would have just probably um, not had to have got out of anywhere, but I probably would have turned out the same. And I think. I don't think kids today, like my kids, miss out so much on growing up in the country, because we lived in a house, we didn't live on a farm. We lived in a regular street, um, in a suburban thing. But I think what the kids don't have today is the freedoms that we had. You know, like we rode our bikes to school, mum never had a car. I never, ever once in my life got dropped off at school. And And I wanted to work from a really early age, so I think when I was like 11, I had a paper run. So I'd get my push bike at like 4.30 in the morning, go and pick up the newspapers, pack them into those little saddlebags you have on your bike and go and deliver papers before school. Then I'd go to school, then I'd go clean like a butcher shop or something at night or work in the hardwares. I always wanted to work when I was like, I think I got my first like actual job after the paper when I was 13 or 14. And when we weren't working and trying to make some, make some bucks because yeah, mum and dad didn't have a lot of money, um, we'd play on the street. And I think that's what the kids miss, on, miss out on today. And when I do my talk now about the fitness crusade, which is what Arnold's got me doing worldwide, is that, that you know, we'd play football or cricket, depending what um, time of the year it was, on the street until dark, until mum would say, dinner's ready, and she'd be yelling and screaming, you know, and you'd be waiting for that last little bit, We'd you'd, you'd hit the ball and you'd think, shit, we're not gonna find that ball, it actually is dark. You know, to the last, remember, remember that? People, we grew up like that. They're, there was nothing on TV, there was no phones or anything and and you rode your bike everywhere. So it was free. You know, I used to have a slug gun and I'd put that on my little dragster bike and ride around with a gun, you know? No one bl- battered it on, I'd go shoot some birds or something or targets and then come home, you know? And and, and growing up um, like that, it was the ultimate freedom because, you know, the adults weren't um, uh, terrified of the stranger danger and all this sort of thing. There wasn't this age of, uh, I don't know, we've just become such a safe society. And I think um, that's what kids have missed out on. You know, it's just, just been able to be kids. They're just forced to grow up so fast and have these adult understandings and adult values. Like my kids tell me stuff, you know, I'm a 10 year old, knows stuff that I'm like, how do you know that? Oh, you know, too much. But she's got an iPad and I don't hold back with that stuff with my kids. I bought them all phones as soon as they could work out how to use a phone. Why not? And then teach them how to use it responsibly rather than demonize something. I've always had reverse psychology with parenting because my parents were very, very straight-laced and don't do this and don't do that, you know? And uh, <clears throat> it was all about um, control and, and, and that was it. that was how they were brought up. They didn't know any different. They didn't mean they wanted the best for us. But in doing that and having a rebellious kind of addictive, obsessed nature, I wanted to do everything that they told me not to do. I'm like, that must be good if you tell me not to do it. Right, so with my kids, I've had a complete opposite approach. And if you want to talk about education of kids, we can go into a little rave about that because I've got a really strong views about that. And, and working, having gyms, right? And you know, you guys know being in the industry, you meet people from all walks of life. I study psychology, like a, like a science. I've never been to school. Well, I got thrown out of school when I was 16, but I never went to university or anything. But I could probably hold my own with most psychologists that I've met and interviewed because I, um, I ask a lot of questions. I'm very curious and I learn as much as I can about behavior of people. So education is one of my little ticks that I, I, I watch. And I'm not a big believer in pushing kids to do university. And in the US, for example, they say, you know, if you don't go to college, you got nothing. If you don't get those letters after you name, you got nothing to fall back on. You're not going to be anything. Yeah, You look at all the people that are the leaders of the biggest organizations in the world. Most of them are either dropouts or self-educated or whatever. And then you look at what's available to the kids today, it's every, where is it, here. Look at this, every library in the world is in your pocket. This is amazing. I just love, I'm, I'm almost envious of my kids. Because if I wanted to find shit out when I was a kid, man, it was an effort. You have to go to a library or get a magazine and do some mail order thing and wait for it to come to get the book to find out what you want to know. They Google it you know, one of my girls is um, the most unbelievable research person I've ever met. I say one word to her, she's got facts, figures, opening times, prices, branches, be looking for some, something to buy, a shop. She goes, oh, such and such, only two suburbs away, closes at six. They've got three in your size, and if we get there, leave now, we'll be there in 14 minutes if the traffic's good. Okay, my PA can't even do that. I mean, that's crazy. So, um, Back to the education thing, I think that we've pushed kids so hard and made them feel like they're they're a loser or they're they're a drop if they don't. Um, And I had this enormous pressure from my family saying, you know, we've saved up for you to go to uni. I'm like, I don't need that. And They only wanted the best for me because they didn't have those opportunities, but I think it's gone too far the other way. So I watch people all the time and I just say to my kids, I want you to find something that you love doing, that you're passionate about, all right, and then we'll work out how to make a living out of it. If that involves going to uni, I'll back you all the way. But if that's not for you, I'll back you all the way. Whatever. And right, I've got this um, one family. I watched, they're an Albanian family. And I uh, watched these kids grow up. We had a shop and they lived kind of next door. Anyway, long story short, they're always really well-mannered kids. Their dad had made a lot of money. I don't know how, don't, doesn't matter. But he had properties and stuff. I've never seen work, but he owns a couple of pubs and he's got buildings and properties everywhere. So he said to his three sons, he goes, you know what, don't work. I've, I've put enough money away, whatever. When you turn 18, I'll buy you a Mercedes Benz. Just go out, hang out, meet chicks, have fun, party, go places with your mates, travel, see the world, uh, whatever, don't worry about school. And, and I think he was using reverse psychology. He's just laid back about it. He goes, if you want to do that, do it, but there's no pressure. So turn 18, they get a Mercedes Benz. So the first one we turned 18, he goes, dad, I wouldn't mind going to uni. I didn't want to do law, now he's a corporate lawyer. The second one's an engineer and the third one's an architect. And I've never seen kids with less pressure. They've got mates who force their kids into university and two of them are doing rehab and one's dead. You know, because they were under so much pressure they just turned to drugs and one overdosed because he was just going so hard because he rebelled so badly against what his family forced him to do. And you stop and think, "Mm, hmm, there's something in that. Why are we so obsessed with pushing our kids this American way to say, boom, we're the greatest country in the world. If you wanna make it here, you're gonna make it, right? And if you're obsessed with doing something, you're gonna be obsessed, you're gonna make it work. So I've got kind of, and I don't know if I'm right, I just know that I've seen a lot of shit. And the majority of kids I've seen forced into private schools and forced into university have grown up to be failures and losers. And even the guys I went to school with, the really brainy ones who were just had this academic pathway. I went to a school reunion a couple of years ago, I'm like, really? <laughs> Yeah, I'm not trying to judge, but look at is. You know, one guy, I remember he was a genius. He went to, a, went to the school I went to, right? Then he went to teacher's college. Then he got a job back at the school. He's still there.
0: Well, he have not fucking left. <laughs> oh! Do you have any parenting mottos or is that that it in the summary?
1: What do you mean by mottos, like little sayings?
0: Yeah, little sayings or things that you live by. It's like you said, you know, you're pretty free with the iPads and stuff like this.
1: Oh man, I'm just free. I, I don't lie to them. You know, the girls, I've got one son, three daughters. The son, I'm probably a little bit more truthful than the girls because there's stuff I don't want to tell them. But I'm really honest with them. <laughs> I don't pretend that the world's a beautiful place. I don't sugarcoat things. I don't, um, you know, molly them or wrap them in cotton wool or anything else. I encourage them to play outside, encourage them to make good decisions. I encourage them to, to communicate and have open channels with me and make them understand. They can tell me absolutely anything. I've always kind of said this thing if if it comes from you you tell me something if you screw up if it comes from you i won't you won't, can't get in trouble but if the school calls or the police knock on the door and you haven't told me be a big problem so that's kind of kept the the channels open so it's an evolving thing you know like So you guys have got kids, you know, it's it's hard.
0: Do you think uh, in a way that kids, you know, going back to where you were in Bendigo, very isolated, very just, you know, focused, this is the goal, this is the path, have to get out every day. I think kids are more distracted today with the iPhones and and the iPads. I mean, it's a double-edged sword, right? They can research anything they want, but at the same time, they get distracted and kind of pulled in different directions, possibly from their calling of what they, they, they really want to be doing.
1: No, no, I don't. Um, I, I think there's, there's always going to be temptation, there's always going to be, you're going to get led astray with or without technology, right? I think that, that kids, if they use it properly, fantastic. What does concern me is kids are inactive. And this is where this fitness crusade comes into play and this is what I talk, I'm getting finally in front of government agencies and um, uh, Visit Victoria and uh, Sport and Recreation and we, we're addressing on Monday, 41 different sporting leaders are coming to hear me talk about our fitness crusade and how we can change lives. And what concerns me is that kids are more inactive than they've ever been before, right? Because of their phones and their iPads and their Playstations. They're not out. So you don't see kids riding their bike, you don't see them playing on the street. And it's not just a safety thing. You know, their engagement in sport and doing something to be fit is at an all-time low and obesity is at an all-time high. And I think that's way worse than seeing some bad shit on the iPad. I mean, they've got Netflix, so they can watch someone getting their head cut off if they go on the right channel. You know, like, they're not as insulated as they were, but there's different temptations. So when I was a kid, you know, we were arsonists, vandals, thieves. You know, we'd shoot things, we'd set fire to things, we'd steal things, and, you know, kids aren't doing that. They're doing dumb shit online. There's dumb shit either way. Kids do dumb shit, right? So you've got to try and help them to understand the consequences of dumb dumb shit and to make good choices and and, and to not be that one who's on the edge all the time. You know, so I, I think that... Uh, there's more good than bad with technology because they've got the world at their feet. You know, like, I've always said this thing about traveling. I think, imagine when I was a kid, if I could have actually researched some of these places. I would, I've been to, I think, 60 countries. I probably would have been to 100 by now if I'd had access to that stuff. You know, because I had to wait for it to come on TV, but you know what I mean? So you can look at it either way, but I, I don't think it's negative. it's just society in the world, everything evolves. And kids they are
0: way smarter than we were. Kids are so smart, man. Yeah, absolutely. Switching gears just a a tiny bit. What's been your biggest or most challenging business moment? Uh, Did you want to quit? And how do you get through it? Because I mean, business isn't always obviously smooth sailing. Well, I don't think I've got a most challenging moment. I find that question really hard to answer. What's your most
1: challenging moment? Because I don't know. Oh, there's been, we sit here all day and I'll tell you a hundred challenging moments I've never told anyone. There's so many. But did I ever want to quit? Now this is something you all need to know and anyone listening needs to hear, is that we all feel like quitting. Every single one of us has days where you just don't want to leave the house. You say I I can't deal with anyone. I don't want to have to face that problem. I don't want to have to deal with this stress. I don't want to have to see that person. I don't want to have that confrontation. For all of us, every single day. But I just never did quit. And and I, I think anyone says, oh no, I never wanted to quit, bullshit. You know, we all have tough days. And it's, it's how you deal with it that's gonna define your success in life. It's by being saying, no matter what, I'm gonna show up. I'll take the punches, I'll take the hits, I'll take the hard days. And I look back and I've had so many hard days. I did a piece on it the other day and just said, well, I probably wouldn't change them because it's, it's made me tougher and stronger and learnt me to know me and my brand and what I'm good at and what I'm not good at and what I've failed at, I've learned from and so on. And it's all okay. You know, but the but, uh, lowest point in business, I mean, whenever you lose a shitload of money and other people suffer, that's, that's, a, that's a low. Yeah, I remember um, early on, like one of the pro shows and it was 2004, in fact, a bit of a rain man with details and numbers and names and times. And it's good for names, though, because I remember everyone's names. So someone comes in the gym after 15 years, this guy came in yesterday, I'm like, Enio. He goes, well, I haven't been this since 2005 or 2006, and it's a weird name, and I remembered it. So I've always had this thing with, everyone's got a little something, right? With memory. And um, so it was 2004, we had the Australian Pro bodybuilding and it was like Chris Cormier, Dexter Jackson, Marcus Rule, Fantastic King Kamali, Craig Titus in this lineup. It was the best lineup we'd ever had. And I broke even, or lost money on it every year. It's just a little story. Just understand sometimes you get kicked in, you know, where it hurts. And um, it was the best lineup ever. And the, the, if you Google the prejudging of that show, it's one of the w- most watched videos ever because this guy Kamali and Titus hated each other's guts and the internet had just become popular with Remember those forums, the bodybuilding forums? And they were going on these forums giving each other death threats and everything, right? And, and it gets funnier because when they're on the way here, Titus left from uh, Vegas and, and Kamali left from New Jersey. He flew from uh, Newark in New Jersey to LA. Titus flew from Vegas to LA. And it was United Flight UA 94, I think, coming into Melbourne. And Kamali was on the plane first. Titus flew in from Vegas, was running late. He walks down the aisle of the plane with his ticket, 29C, 29C. The plane's full. He turns, there's one seat left. It's next to Kamali and his wife. And they had to sit together for 14 hours. And these guys were like, you know, restraining orders, death threats, everything. So it was fantastic, and I'd done this postcard of them facing off at each other, Kamali versus, versus Titus, you know, uh, you know, something about death and all this stuff. And Titus ended up get, going to jail for murder. So he was a, a genuine nutcase. He's doing 56 years, true story. Anyway, that one. So after the show, I'd finally made some money. I'd made like 25 grand or something. I'm like, wow. And I was married at the time. We had two, two little kids. I'd said to Amanda, um, after this show, you know, because we've gone without for so long, we just bought our house and so on. I said we're going to go on a holiday. We're going to go to know, Fiji or somewhere like that and have a break and we made some money finally. And there was two vans of, of athletes went to the airport. And I was driving the second one because back then I used to sell the tickets, cut up the popcorn, drive the van, set up back everything. You know, and I still do to a point, but not as bad as that. But it was everything. So I was driving one of the vans. So I got there behind the other one. I walked to the airport, you know when you just get a bad feeling? Something's wrong. And I went to the United counter and they're all still standing. I'm thinking, why aren't they on the plane? There's something wrong. So I said, what's up? And they said, well, the lady won't let us on the plane. Long story short, their ticket, the type of ticket I'd got them, which was a cheaper ticket, said they had to be in Australia for five nights and they'd only been there three or four nights. And one of their wives had been extremely rude to the lady at the counter like talk down you as Americans sometimes do and it'd been very confrontational. And the lady got her back up and she goes, you know what? I just looked at the conditions on your ticket. You're not getting on that plane today. Oh, oh, oh. I'll go talk to her. Mr. Charming, right? Psychologist, all this shit. Goes, excuse me, ma'am. I said, I apologize for anyone that's spoken badly to. You. It's this group of people that, you know, hard few days, whatever I said. She goes, um, yeah, I've been through that with that rude lady. Um, they're not getting on the plane today. Check your ticket. yeah, but is there something we can do? Like, I'm really sorry, she goes, yep, what you can do is if you wanna get them on a flight today, there's seven or eight of them, whatever it was, you can buy seven or eight one-way tickets to LA. On your credit card, you got 15 minutes. Whoa, 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 please, (laughs) ma'am. Anyway, so I called my travel agent. He's like, um, ah, don't worry, I know the, the lady that runs all of United, I'll call her. So he calls her, she's at a barbecue. How dare you call me at the weekend? I've already had a call from my operator about your rude group, we're done. She calls me brother goes, brother, I think we've got a big problem. Anyway, I went back to the counter and I go, please. I said, I, I'm begging, is there something we can do? She goes, nothing we can do. And I put my hand, I still remember, I put my hand up on the thing and, and it, there was a strip of aluminium there. was really sharp and it tore my finger and I'm bleeding like hell. I'm going, look, I won't even sue you about your faulty counter. You're just helping me with your poop. She goes, um, get first aid, get a band aid. whatever, next. Oh, we're gone. Anyway, I got down to seven minutes, five minutes, three minutes. She goes, it's gonna take me at least three minutes to process those cards. If you want them on the plane, this is it. So I pulled out my um, credit card, which I hate using, and I bought seven one-way tickets to our own. It cost $18,000. So this family holiday, this successful event, the best promoter in the free world, just did his balls at the last moment. So it was, that was a, you know, I remember driving back, Hey, uh, yeah, that trip, <laughs> no, I'm not going, uh, that was a hard one, but you know, I've still got the same travel agent because he ended up sending me half because he, um, he, he accepted that he'd made a mistake and we'd both, you know, rolled the dice and, uh, you know, I've spent over a million bucks with him since because of his loyalty in that situation. So I learned something about a good person and I learned something about how to deal with shit. But I've got a hundred stories like that.
0: Wow! Bigger, better, worse. Incredible. I mean, the fitness industry has changed quite considerably. If you you know go back to the 1980s, you know the heyday, the Frank Columbus, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, pumping iron, that whole movement, where it just kind of had a different feel to it to today, where you kind of see, uh, you know, lycra and you know fluoro colours in the gym, and who knows what, Instagram people on their phones, social media, glute exercises, and who know what else. What what? You just
1: named all the things you hate, right?
0: Correct. Um, I mean, apart from those, has there been any other, I suppose, observations that you've made? And also on that, how has it affected the Doherty's brand? Well, first with the fitness industry, I I try and see the positive in everything. It's
1: like like a sickness. I think it's great. You know, because back then, you look at pro bodybuilding back then, there was only 10 pro bodybuilders in the world. Now we've got 10 categories with thousands of pros who've got an opportunity to make a living and see the world and, and promote themselves. And as much as it sucks to see people in the gyms doing their selfies and having five or 10 minute sets between, uh, uh, rest between their sets, that's their trip. You know, but there's a whole lot more people doing fitness than ever before. There's a whole lot more excitement. You know, fitness people have become kind of celebrities in the real world because of their working out and their bodies and their Instagram followings. And, you know, probably going back when I first started doing the Expos, I was like, who are these dickheads, you know, these Insta-famous people. And I'm like shit. They sell a lot of tickets. Who can we get next? You know, I've just embraced it. I'm just like, man, it is what it is. You know, um, the only thing is if, if I'm working out and someone's on a bench um, playing on their phone on Instagram and taking selfies and not doing exercise, and I want the bench, that pisses me off. But being the abrupt kind of upfront person, I normally politely say to them, look, you know, do your thing. I'm not going to attack you about that, but can you sit over there and do it or finish your set? Um, but I, I, I think. I think there's more good than bad in all, in, in, in all of it because you know, we've got an opportunity now to have more people interested in fitness. There's all you guys you know, making livings as trainers that you wouldn't have before if it wasn't you know, for the popularity and the internet and that side of it. So you have gotta take, the, take the, the good with the bad. And I think for the most part, um, you know, that was kind of a golden age of, in bodybuilding specifically. But I think of Arnold and I've talked to him a lot about this, about his fitness crusade. And when he started you know, 50 years ago, Um, He started traveling to promote first his books that I saw on TV and then later on to promote his courses and then his competitions and then to promote his movies and no one promoted better than him because he learned his lessons from bodybuilding. So when he went to promote movies, he was the first movie star to go to every single state. He'd go to 52 states for an opening and for a promotion and to meet the people. And he still does. His His work ethic is ridiculous which is why he's had the success that he's had. And same with politics and everything he's he's attacked. He's been so obsessive about it, that he's had great success. And he talks to me about the early days, you know, where he couldn't find a single gym in a city with gym equipment, even a pull-down machine. And he says, look at it now, every single hotel in the world has got dumbbells and treadmills. Every fire station, police station in the US has got their own gym. Every high school, every university has got facilities like my Brunswick gym, like, you know, you've seen the squat racks and the the whole set of everything in in every school in the world. And there's no way you can't go now, you can't not find a gym. And that's happened during his fitness crusade. And and him starting that whole pumping iron thing and bodybuilding, making it popular with his TV, has contributed to that enormously. But now everything that the Instagrammers are doing is also contributing to it. So everyone's making a buck, you know? There's more studios, there's more personal training, but there's more people training. I think the bottom line is, there's more people getting fit than ever before, and we've got a chance to impact them. But my passion now is to influence the kids to want to be fit and feel good about themselves. And all this political correctness of, oh, you don't have ever got a good body to feel bad about yourself. It's okay to be fat. No, it's not. You know, it's, it's not okay to feel bad about yourself. And, and, and a small percentage probably think it's great to be, morbidly obese or fat and walk around and, and the rest of it. But for the most of the kids growing up that aren't being given the license to feel good about themselves, it concerns me. So I wanna see kids get active and play more sport and get them into the gyms and all that. So
0: long answer, but um, I think it's all good. Yeah, so I suppose in terms of the brand, cause I mean Doherty's, the, it seems that the brand has uh, absorbed i suppose part of that that culture because if you can contrast it to say the 1980s arnold schwarzenegger kind of mainly a male centric uh, gym environment now you've got a lot more females in the gym yeah. so really i suppose the bottom line is, is bigger turnovers for for gyms really yeah. bigger turnovers. i mean for- how it's
1: impacted doherty's is that um the social media and the people taking selfies in my gym that tag my gym make it more popular make more people come you know, we've got more women coming than ever before. We've got more kids, more older people coming from, more mainstream people coming because we, you can't, and this is you too, Mark, you can't just knock it and go, oh yeah, but all these Instagram, because we both use it as a tool. So I can't say, oh, I hate that part of it because I love it, man. I, I'm all over social media. We, I think it's fantastic. And we've been able to use just certain hashtags in, in, in social media to, um, to break down some uh, conceptions about, some misconceptions about our brand because one of the things is it's just for meatheads and you've got to be super muscular to walk in there. So we started this hashtag home away from home. You know, fitness for everyone, this kind of thing. And it's, it's broken down some barriers where more people are comfortable to walk in the door. So I can't say oh, I hate people doing selfies, but I'm going to use it to, you know. So I just try and find the positive in it and go, OK, well, how can we use that to our advantage? How can we embrace that, that kind of technology, and make it popular and say, so, okay, while well, you're here, can you hashtag home away from home, Australian Mecca? So we've got all these little hashtags that we tell people to, to do. And it's, it's just, it, it, I think it's great. So it's impacted the brand in a good way.
0: On social media, what platforms are you on personally versus like Doherty's, do you, do you split it up? Do you have an ad agency for say Doherty's? And I've never had, had an ad agency
1: for anything in my whole life. I've got a publicist for the Arnold. I've got a full-time Australia's best publicist, Max Markson works for me full-time three months of the year, and I've got him on a retainer the rest of the time. But as far as ad agencies, I don't even know what they are. So how, what never do you do, really do in
0: terms of your promotions for uh, say Doherty's? So in, in terms of the content that comes out of, say, the Tony Doherty pages on Instagram and Facebook, that's all you, correct? That's all
1: me. Well, yep, yeah, mostly Instagram, just to b- back to that. I hardly use Facebook at all. Um, I'll transfer some stuff from Instagram just to keep it alive, the truth of it is. I get there's so much more interaction on Instagram. when I. Talk to the young people, all the people that work for me, and the kids, and you know, people that are really active on it. It's all Instagram. Instagram's just kicking butt. It really is. Um, I still use the other stuff, but only to to, to drive people to the Instagram page, really. Um, so my personal brand, I, I do a lot of Instagram stuff. I do that all myself. Um, I don't plan it; it's just spontaneous. Um, I do a thing every day, most days, called Real Talk, where I just blurt out those 15-second things about life and that's, that's having about, um, if I do it daily, if I travel, it drops off a little bit, but I'm, I've been back for two months now and it's built right up and I'm getting 4,000 views on my story every day. And I might do 20 stories, they so all get three and a half to four and a half thousand views a day, um, which is like 10% of the people that follow me, which is a really high um, interactive interaction rate. Um, and with the gyms and with the Arnold and with some other stuff that I do, I think there's about eight different Instagram pages that we control. Um, so I have someone, um, I've got a film guy like you do that does my video stuff for my personal one and for the Arnold and for the, for the Doherty's. And then I've got a couple of people that um, are allowed to post but I'm really, I'm really careful with it because if you get the wrong person posting the wrong message or the wrong image of the brand, it can just undo years of work in, in, in minutes literally. So I'm still kind of controlling with that sort of stuff. But we have meetings um, once a week where we plan what we're gonna do for the next week or two and then if I go missing, at least they've got a plan. Um, but we've just got so like thousands, hundreds of thousands of pictures and files of people who have trained there over the years and stories and testimonials and, and stuff like that. So we just kind of say, okay, what, what, why are we doing it? That's always the question with the social media stuff. Is it to get more meatheads? If that's the case, we'll put up more pictures of Ronnie Coleman or someone trained at the gym. Is it to get more regular people? Then we do interviews with regular people talking about regular things and saying. in fact, we just did this series, I've only released a couple of them, where we, had, um, we interviewed uh, 15 members that have been there for more than 20 years. Can you imagine that? I mean, our renewal rate at our gym, I know in Brunswick's over 70%. The industry runs on 15%. That's pretty good, huh? And that's because we look, look after people, it becomes part of their life. But when you interview someone about what the gyms meant to their life over 20 years, It's it's moving, it's unbelievably amazing because this has become the most stable thing in their life where marriages have failed, parents have died, kids have dropped out, fallen off the wagon, whatever. Um, Where there's one guy interviewed and he'd been through a really rugged divorce. He came to the gym because he wanted to kill himself. He said, I've got to do something for myself, I'm going mad. He'd moved back in with his mum and dad at 40, kids, everything, Uh, and he he really lost his mind. he come and joined the gym and I didn't know this whole story until recently. And that became part of his life. Then he met his second wife. His kids grew up. He's now a grandfather. He's got a very successful business. He travels, he's followed all these places I tell him to go to and so on. But it's been the most stable thing of his life. So now I'm using it to try and say to people, most people don't go to the gyms to change their bodies or to get in shape. That's part of it. But they, well, with our gym, it's different with transformation stuff, but with our gym, they go there to cope. And it becomes such an important part of people's life where, you know, I think years ago, people had churches before TV and social media, that's why religion was popular, not because of the God factor, it's part of it, but most of it was the socialization and just the fact that they had somewhere to congregate and to meet. Now we've got groups, you know, and apps. But um, gyms, gyms are really, really magic places. I'm a gym guy, unashamedly. I like, hang out at my gym, I can't wait to get there every day. I get excited when I talk about it. And I think that, that shines through. So the, I guess long answer is that's kind of the message we, we try and get out with our social media, that it's, it's for everyone. You know, you haven't got to come and be Mr. Olympia, but if you want to, we can take you there. But if you just want to come to get away from your crazy life or to cope, it's, it's a big part of it. And I did a, a podcast this week on, on uh, mental health and you know, the importance of exercise for mental health. It's the greatest cure for depression you know, that people are doing it really, really hard. If they could just exercise every day and clear their minds, phew, what a difference it makes. And we all know it, right? You know when you don't train for a while and you go, oh, yeah, I don't miss it. It's when you start again, you go, oh, I didn't realize how much I missed it. It's one of those things. It's like if you've been in shape and you get fat, you go, oh yeah, it's not, nothing. And then you start to get in shape again, you go, oh God, how I ever let myself go.
0: You know, it's a funny thing. You only notice it on the way back. To circle back to what you are talking about before, about the real talk. So they're just, for those who don't know, and add in anything that I missed, but they're just those 15 second holding the Instagram down and saying something to the camera and just doing a, a sequence of those. Is that is that yeah. how you do Yeah. And in, in that, what what effect would you say that has been doing that regularly has had on, you know, either entries in, into Doherty's gym? Oh, or nothing to do with Doherty's gym. No, do? no, no, This just my personal shit. This is more to do with, um, So that's not having a direct impact on uh, like memberships or anything like that, no. just because that's your personal crusade kind of thing? No, I do not yeah. is, is there anything uh, that you're doing for Doherty's that's similar to that, or is it just more... No. Yeah. Um, well. Um-
1: Twenty years. Wow. You know, that's my thing.
0: Amazing. Yeah. I hope you've been enjoying this interview. We'll be right back after a short break. Stay tuned to our YouTube, uh, where there's going to be more great parts and episodes coming up from the Wolf Stand. See you soon. Welcome back to the Wolf's Den. My name is Mark Tobri, my guest today is Tony Doherty. We're gonna pick back up from where we left off. Tony, can you tell me about what the differences are between running Doherty's versus running the Arnold Classic?
1: Well, major differences because they're completely different companies. Mm. Um, Different uh, budgets, different realities, yeah, completely different. There's no, in fact, there's no similarities at all.
0: So how does one go from running, you know, six gyms to then just being launched into the event space? I mean, are there similar skills and tools that you've accumulated? What, what, how did you, you know, just run such a big event? I mean, it'd be like learning a whole different uh, well, it grew, school man. set. It grew, yeah.
1: you know, and I think that's what people have to realize. You don't just go out and run a huge gym and you don't just go out and run a huge event like an Arnold Sports Festival. Um, the, you know, I started running bodybuilding shows back in the late 80s um, uh, and that grew as I said earlier into running the first time ever Australia's pro show and then that grew into a pro-am and then that grew into a small expo and the small expo grew into a bigger expo so I just learned along the way, developed the skills that I needed. Um, but then when it went from being fit ex, um, sport fitness expo into the Arnold Sports Expo it changed dramatically because there were so many more factors with you yeah, publicity and working with the world's most famous person. And then, personally, the way it affected me most is probably with the travel, because before I could go away once a year and still be successful as a bodybuilding or an expo promoter, but now I travel with Arnold at least six times a year, sometimes more. Plus, um, for me to do my research, I've been to every fitness expo in the world, from FIBO to uh, body power around the world to shows in India and China and everywhere. So the last five years, um, the biggest thing that's changed is, is the travel. But comparing the gym and the Arnold, it's, it's, it's completely different. I do have a couple of staff that swing between the two with graphics and um, uh, my IT guy, and my graphics girl, both sort of work on both businesses, but the others are just worlds apart.
0: So do you still run Doherty's or do you have someone run majority of Doherty's? Is that kind of you know, handball to? Um,
1: when I say I don't run it, I'm still kind of hands on. Um, so I basically I manage my managers. I've got one particular guy, Andrew Ascander, who runs effectively three of them, as a manager goes two days a week at each one, out of the three. And um, I meet with him two, three times a week for a good hour, where we sit down and, and go through a little bit of planning, a little bit of strategy. Um, mostly for me, it's yes, and it's encouragement. But then if I feel that they're going the wrong way with the brand or whatever, then I'll just say, no, that's not the way I want to go, and this is why. Um, and then just with, with the hiring, as I said earlier, I'm just getting a little bit more hands-on on who we allow into the organisation because they've got to understand what we are and what we do. Um, and then with the growth of the business, I'm looking to bring someone on next um, to help me to expand the licence and franchise side of it because that's a different person than someone that's hands-on running a gym. But uh, I'm, so I'm still pretty hands-on. I don't get round to all of them as, as much as I'd like. And uh, people say, what would you like if you wish for one more thing and be like, 28 hours in a day and eight days in a week. Cause no, I just can't good. fit this Love. shit in. I'm, it's, this is the biggest problem I've got. I never have a day off. I just go, 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 go.
0: And discussing just the structure of your teams. I mean, how big is the team for Doherty's versus the team for the Arnold Classic?
1: Well, you can't compare because each of the gyms got about 10 employees. There's seven gyms, so there's like 70 or 80 with the part-timers with Doherty's and the Arnold team is six. So it's a very tight knit team, um, but they do an extraordinary job because we don't have the budget some of the big expos have. So a comparable expo um, in Australia might have 20 people working on it full time, we've got six. So they're, they're really committed, they're really married to the job. Mm. Um, um, but it's, it, it's it's a good role. And I think what I've probably found with the popularity of my brands with both of them is if I advertise a position, I've got a, you know, a, a line a mile long of people wanting to be part of it. And then once you sift through them and work out who's in it for the right reason, then you've got to align it half a mile long. You know, so we, we do get to sort of hand pick the people that come in, and, and we're getting better at that all the time. But that's, that's also something you don't just get good at. You've got to... You've got to uh,
0: so the hardest thing about, I suppose, running the Arnold's is the travel personally, but I suppose on a professional... No, that's not the hardest thing at no, all, no. no. What do you think no. the hardest thing is on uh, running the Arnold? The
1: hardest meeting the budget, because it costs, um, this year will be like 2.4 million to put on, and we're not funded at all. So I start with a blank slate and go, shit, how are we going to do that every year? I'm like, ah, it's a nightmare. Because the convention centre, for example, cost me $700,000 to rent for a weekend. Wow. I know, right? <laughs> and you get four fucking walls <laughs> and the and roof and that's it. Like, there's no carpet, there's no power. They're so rude, they, they, they turn the power metre on. They charge me an extra 10% and then take the power out of the extra 10% and give me the balance back. So you don't even get power. 700, grand? you <laughs> don't get a freaking light. It's hideous. Then if I want to sell food there, I have a loss of revenue fee. Well, so you're affecting our canteen sales, and you're going to give us another 20, 30. It's crazy. It's the most one-sided thing in the world. Like last year on carpet squares, a hire carpet, I spent $60,000 on carpet hire. You know, and Jenny, I know you always compete. That stage that I built, you know, that's nearly 50,000 to rent the stage and lights and the rigging to do that. And I've got three stages. You know, and then the Strongman area where I have the grandstands up both sides. There's $17,000 each side, you know, to rent. And no one can see this. No one can see what, what goes into it. So this is the biggest challenge is the budget. No shit. You know, I've got to sell all that space and raise all the sponsorship money and then get the tickets on... On sale, and thank God for the VIP ticket people because they buy their tickets early and really help me to put the deposit down on the venue. But even that's a fight because when you hire a venue like that from a government agency, they want 30% up front. So I bet I haven't sold any tickets. Okay, we'll rent it to someone else. So it, it's a, that's, that's the challenge.
0: So putting it up Ooh. and the risk that people are going to come in and spend money when, they, when they're in yeah. there. Yeah.
1: yeah, there's been years, honestly, I haven't drawn a wage from it, where well, I've worked 365 days straight. And not got remunerated one cent. So it's not—it's not like I do it for the money. It's like I love it. But the hardest thing is making it work, making it fit. And the problem is, it gets bigger, <laughs> it gets smaller. So just when I've got it figured out, I change it. So <laughs> it's just, oh man, you don't want to be in here. You don't want to be in there. Sometimes I just go, what the hell is wrong with you? What, what have you done, man? You know. And and so just when I get it right, I reinvent it. Great. So this year, because it's our fifth year, we've completely redone the floor plan. So I've moved everything around. I've come up with, I think it's genius, and it's going to work. But, you know, never make it work. Uh, So that's the hardest bit. The travel was the best bit, man. I love it. I mean, getting to travel with your idol and and go to some of the most amazing places in the world and eat at the best restaurants and to do some of the most incredible things. I mean, some of the experience I've had with Arnold, like... The first year we had the Arnold here was on the same weekend as the Grand Prix. And the same politicians who won't give us a cent towards it or recognise the fact. I wouldn't have had an economic impact study done, um, hoping that would open some doors. And it is now, five years later. And we put $23 million into Victoria's economy in one weekend, proven and audited. Right? And there's events that they fund that put half that much in that they lose money on and they don't, won't even, wouldn't even talk to us. So the first year, so the Premier, um, Daniel Andrews, John Aaron, the Minister for Sport, the Prime Minister, all there at the Grand Prix. The same guys that wouldn't talk to me, trying to get a selfie with Arnold, right? And we went into the race director's room and I'd, I'd worded him up. He goes, so you guys are the ones that won't even answer his emails. Right, just, <laughs> right? And it was fantastic. But one of the best memories, we went out to the start of the race and, and you know all the cars are getting onto the grid and the race director, whose name's Pasquale, who worked for uh, eccleston comes out and he goes you guys just wait there right to the premier mm-hmm. the minister's sport prime minister arnold tony come with me excuse me <laughs> and we went onto the grid and we're there when they're starting the engines of the car and they bring out this dry ice to put under the engine so the cars don't explode and we met um uh you know ricardo and the, the guy that won the race and arnold was up on the podium doing his speeches so i was there on the podium next to them and uh, we met um, Nicky Lauda who's the Austrian guy that caught fire in the famous in the 80s and had selfies with him, all this kind of thing and oh, this is my friend Tony a, and uh and TV interview it was crazy you know being broadcast to 400 million people around the world um, on the podium of the Grand Prix I'm like, I couldn't have thought this shit up and then conversely that'd be one of my greatest experiences. also this year we're in Africa and we went to um we did the Arnold a youth festival in a in a part of Johannesburg called Alexandra which is, so in, in Brazil we have favelas, you know what they are? It's the slums. In India they're called slums. In Africa they're called townships. So there's a place, let's say the size of Richmond with 1.1 million people living in these little tin shacks. right? And half of them are kids. So we put on this activation um, called the Arnold Youth Festival where we've got 16 sports to, to do free sport for kids to come and try them. We've got some facilities right next to the township and they'll do soccer and rugby and baseball and netball and basketball and martial arts and we had another room with 300 kids playing chess all these different things and the deal was if you're a kid from the township and and we're trying to get you into sport away from drugs and gangs because there's a massive violent problem there um that if you come and try a sport you get a free arnold t-shirt and a free bottle of water and a free meal we had 14,000 kids show up Can you imagine? 14,000 little black kids with hope in their eyes. And you look down, half of them not wearing any shoes. Not because of the weather, because they haven't got any shoes. You know, and I said, wow, they're waiting two, two and a half hours for their meal, because we ran out of food. In fact, we had to share it between the five ladies in the community that did catering, because if one of them had got it, the other ones might have killed them. No shit. So there was all the politics of that that their partners had to navigate. And then they, they, they had these five stations where they could come and get, it was like a big stew and their carbs was maize, because rice is too expensive, it's maize, it's like a corn starchy thing, with this stew, I don't know what was in it. Right? These kids lined up two, three hours, and when I got to the bottom of it, it's because most of them never had two meals in one day in their whole life. They eat once a day and they've got no shoes, and they rock up, yeah, the free t-shirt was good, but wow, free food? You know, it was was one of the most heart-wrenching and amazing and emotional things I've ever been involved with. Just as good as being in a helicopter or being on the grid of a Grand Prix because you look down at these little kids who are trying sport perhaps for the first time, whose parents are never going to push them into that, who might, you you just do the numbers. You know, if 10% of them get through, that's 1,400 lives we changed. If 1% get through, that's 140 kids that might have a good life because we were there. You know, so these, these kind of things are sometimes the highlights. It's not, it's not always a flash chip, you know? Um, so th- th- for me, the travel mark... I can talk to you guys about travel and places all day long. It's really, really impacted me. It changed my point of view, and it's helped me to... Like, a lot of time with my real talk, people say, where do you get all this stuff from? Okay, because I've seen stuff that we haven't seen here. We live in this land of opportunity, and I see this sense of entitlement we have here. Well, people have this ability to be sad and depressed and feeling bad. Now, I understand some people get clinical depression. That's terrible. But most people get situational depression because they feel sorry for themselves and they overthink shit. You get born in China or India. Let's go to India. I went into a slum in Mumbai. My God, it was the most life changing years ago. I had this driver at a seven star hotel. He said, you want to see temples or the shit. I go, can we go into a slum? I just thought was if, if no one would be offended. He goes, yeah, he goes, it's a really good slum just around the corner here. Long story short, those people in those slums, when they're 13 or 14, they get pulled out of school and say, hey, Mark, we got you a job. you are going to work in a factory. It's only two hours from here or three hours from here. Seven days a week, no four weeks holiday, no holiday pay, no superannuation, no bullshit. If you go and show up for work every single day and never have a sickie, you can eat for the next 50 years. That's your life. That's your choice. There's no way out. And I said to my driver, he said, I live in a slum about 40 minutes from here. It's a really good slum. We've got running water, we've got power. And I said, how many rooms in your thing? He said, one, three kids. And he, I said, you've got a good job at a seven star hotel. If you, um, he was at the Taj Palace. I said, if you, um, and he was a macular, his gloves were the widest gloves. Like, and they're doing this in, like, in gutters and shit. Anyway, I said, if you, and I, I looked at this worst building I've ever seen in my life. Okay, if you save up really well, you'd you're going to get a $100 tip today, right? Can you live in a place like that, one, man? He just broke out laughing. He goes, no, not in 10 lifetimes. He goes, my parents lived in the slum. I'm in the slum. My kids will always live in the slum. We can never get out of there. But because I work so hard, my kids get to go to a better school. And he lit up like this. And he told me a story how his three little boys, seven, eight, and nine, walked half an hour to get to the dirt road to get on the bus to go two and a half hours. On a bus without their mum, no four-wheel drive out the front of the school. beep. Beep. You know, and then two and a half hours to come home on the bus. So they've gone like 12, 14, 15 hours a day to go to a better school, to have an opportunity, not even to get out of a slum, but to get a better job than driving a car or working in a factory. See what I'm saying? Mm. They don't have a choice. So we go, I can say to you guys, believe in yourself, make a plan, have a vision, you can do it. You get born in a shithole, dream all you want, you're fucked. And this is what travel's taught me. I've been to places in China where people come in from the villages and been bussed in. There's cities in China where they've built cities. There's a city city not far from Shanghai that's built for 5 million people. It's not even open yet. It's got hospitals and schools and factories and supermarkets and it's got a fence around it. So that when Shanghai finally spills over they're just going to get 5 million people go, you don't live there anymore, you live here. And they get bussed there and that's that. You know when I see this stuff, I see these poor little kids, who who, who all they've got's hope. They'll come back here and go, phone <laughs> ran out of batteries.
0: <laughs> what what are what are three places that you would say you know absolutely you know anyone who's watching this, if you go there, you won't come back the same person. That have been like real Ooh, special places that you think.
1: Well, depends what you're going for. If it's for experience and food and culture and you know richness. And, and, and a contrast, I'd say Brazil. Because Brazil, you've got the Favalas, but you've got some of the best food in the world. You've got the most beautiful people with amazing character and personality and drive. And where if they work hard, they can get it. And they're one of the hardest working races in the world. So I'd say Brazil will be on right up there. Um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of my business partners, who I've done like India, they're like, oh, it's terrible. So Every time I've been there like four or five times, every time I've come back really enriched. You know, because you just see stuff. When I went into that slum I was talking about in Mumbai, the thing I took out of is that they're happy. And most people are not miserable. They're, they're kind of honoured that I went in there. I just want to make friends and smile and the kids were happy. Kids had this thing the size of your gym on a dirt thing and they'd made a cricket ball out of tape and they had a stick. And that was it. That was all their toys put together. And they're playing this thing and they're all happy. They're laughing and they appreciated what they had. And I, so I think in, India is a really enriching place to visit, just to change, change the way you look. Third one, oh man. I know, I love history and I love nature. I just love everything. You know, I'm really fortunate because I, f- I see the good, in, i find something good in everything. There's not one single place in the world I've been that I didn't like. I'm like yeah, but they've got this. Yeah, it's sure. shit old, but they've got that. So I always find something. So I don't know, man. Um, I don't think the US is amazing, but it's like 50 different countries. It's so big, it's like, Australia and more because like here you've got to go three days to see something like that there but there's a whole lot of states in between. And of course Europe, you know, the history of, of the old castles and the, you know, seeing things a thousand years old and understand that these guys were building these incredible architectural miracles a thousand years before computers were invented or anything digital that we couldn't build today that is still standing. So I, I love that kind of thing. I was in Prague last year, I was in oh, shit, Portugal and Spain and Holland, and, and I've been really been fortunate to go to so many places. I don't think I can pick a third one. But I think as Australians we don't know enough about South America because in school, right, we learn about the US, we learn about Europe. Starting to learn a little bit about Asia, but South America, well, there is a South America? Okay, that's just so rich history. And, oh man, I don't, I don't even think I'll give you my top 10.
0: Just go travel everywhere. Go <laughs> see the world. Forget man. about PT, just go travel. That's it. Well, every chance that's you get, it. seriously, I've, yeah.
1: I've had calls where they go, hey, there's opportunity to do something in Shanghai, but you've got to be there this weekend. I just got to be there. I don't even know how I'm going to get there. i just get there. You know, and Arnold's done that to me a couple of times, and once was for a movie premiere, for uh, Genesis Terminator in Shanghai, for the Asian premiere. I didn't know what I, even why he wanted to be there. We went to look at some venues, but it turned out to be that. It was a great opportunity. We had a fantastic time. You know, and I've had times where you talk about the, um, putting yourself in the right position to succeed where someone said to me, hey, this is happening in the bodybuilding world, but you need to be in a meeting in Pittsburgh or in Las Vegas or in Atlanta next weekend. And I've flown for a single meeting. I flew to have a meeting once with Arnold for an hour to LA to have a meeting and came home again, didn't tell anyone. Just WIT, baby, whatever it takes. W-I-T, whatever it takes. Can't stop and go, oh, but that doesn't make sense. Nothing makes sense.
0: Sorry. I was just going to get inside the head of um, Tony Doherty a little Let's bit go. more. So <laughs> you, you've brought out for now 20 years, the best strongmen, the best bodybuilders, you yes. know, basically celebrities. Um, it, it's quite the, the crown to wear as promoter. I mean, I I'm, imagine there's amazing pressure to get it right from the athletes involved, but also amazing pressure to get it right from the fans who demand their money's worth. How does one handle that pressure? How does one handle that without getting you know, overwhelmed and wanting to rip out their hair?
1: Well, you do your best, you know? And I think anyone that knows me and follows my thing or any kind of fans I've developed over the years just know I'm all in or I'm not in at all. So I give it my 100% best. And like with the Pro Show, some years the lineups have been better than other years. And when I have a poor lineup, I don't work any less. In fact, I to work harder. Just uh, for example, this year's Arnold Classic was unbelievable because it was the 30th year anniversary in Columbus. We were a week later, we couldn't fail. We had the best lineup ever. The year before was shit, it was terrible. So then, I just find an angle, find a way. So that particular year, I thought, okay, well, we're not gonna get the, the best guys in the world, so we'll double the amount of figure girls, we'll double the amount of bikini girls, we'll double the amount of strong men, and bring in more people. We'll bring in some celebrities we wouldn't have got, you know, and you just find a way, just find, you know, it's like breaking through a wall. If you just stand there and just try and go through the same spot, you're just gonna get a headache. Let's just get a brick wall, you know, and it this over with my head, and just do the same thing every day. Do you think you're gonna bust through? No, of course not. But if you go sideways, you go left, you go right, you go left, you go right until you find a crack. And then you dig and you start scratching and then you create a space and you pull a brick out, Your way. way. Well, it's like that with promoting. You just, you don't stop, man. You just, if, if you try as hard as you can and if something doesn't come up, you go, okay, what now? And you think laterally and you think big and you think, okay, but what, what else can I do? And I always find a way. So I love the pressure. I don't feel like there's incredible pressure because I know I give it my all. You know, I think it would be worse if I knew that I was half-assed about something, or I failed because I was lazy, or I failed because I didn't work 100 days straight, or I failed because I, you know, went partying all the time. No, no, man, I just work. So I just give it my all. The athletes, I've got so much credibility that I only could have dreamed of with the professional athletes in a number of sports across the world. I've been a huge influence now in the direction of pro bodybuilding around the world. I'm kind of, you know, in that upper echelon of the, the whole sport. And um, as far as Arnold's concerned, that's the biggest pressure because he always says, him and Jim Lorimer, very, one very specific um, uh, demand, better than your previous best. You know, they, you can't sit still. You can't just go, okay, well, dish that up again. No. So that, that's probably the pressure, is just to keep doing better. And especially when you do well, you go, okay, well, now it's gonna be hard to beat because we had a bit of a lucky year. You know, so you can't just look at the athletes, you look at the big picture of how many people you get and how much publicity you get, how many lives you affect, how many different experiences you do, how many sports you add. You know, this year, for example, at the Arnold Sports Festival, we got in front of the, um, our Charity partner was the Royal Children's Hospital Good Friday appeal, which got me in front of the run for the kids. And that had like 25,000 people doing a fun run on the Sunday of the Arnold. So, I, you know, I fought like hell to get a meeting with them. I got a meeting with them and I said, you guys can come under our umbrella and be one of our activities. We don't, you know, we're not going under anyone. We're going to I said, no, no, we're not going to tell you how to run for kids. We're going to tell you where to start and stop and what road closures to do it. Nothing. I want to say all your athletes after the race can come into the Arnold for free. I'll give them a wristband and I'll bring Arnold to start the race and fire the horn or the pistol or whatever it is if you become part of us, because it's a fitness crusade. And we want to say we had so many tens of thousands of people involved in activity in Melbourne for the weekend. And if you work with us, you can be a part of that. And he can join in with our publicity that we get and all the cameras. I'll bring everyone to the race because Arnold's gonna be there. So I've got my publicist in front of them. And he said, this is gonna be amazing. And we've got more publicity for their race than they've ever, ever had, which raised in turn more money for the children's hospital. So always just find a way, but we added that. You know, so I just think, I don't know, it's be an opportunist. Yeah, man, just like, I don't don't stop thinking. It's funny, I'm just gonna digress, but, and I get this a lot with my real talk and I try and help people, inspire people. And one of the questions I get all the time is, people are a bit lost? And some of us are, all of you. Everyone is, right? But some people are more lost than others. Oh, you know, I really want more out of my life, but I don't know what it is. I haven't found my thing yet. How do you know when you found your thing? And it's a really simple answer. When you find something that keeps you awake at night and wakes you up in the morning and makes you forget to eat and makes you obsessed and crazy, you found your thing. Right? So I'm one of those people who found their thing. So every single day, even without the Arnold stuff, even without the Expos, I get to go to the gym every day. I'm a gym guy, I love it. Every single morning, even when I was married, she'd say, you can't wait to get to the gym, can you? I? Go, I can't wait, I love it. The hardest thing for me is to leave at night. Oh, I'll go in a minute. Oh, so-and-so walked in, because it's my passion. And, and I think in life, you've got to find three things, passion, vision, action. Passion means something that keeps you awake at night. Write this one down, passion, vision, action. The three key words, Mark. I've said this to you before. So important. You can't have, you can't succeed without these three things. Passion means that thing, right? Where it, it, it gives you butterflies, it makes you crazy, it keeps you awake at night, wakes you up in the morning. That's passion. But vision means mm, you've got to be a little realistic, and you've got to say, okay, well, how's this going to work? And what's my plan? And what's what's my point of difference? And what's my vision to make this? Because you know, everyone wants to own a studio or a personal trainer, but they've got no idea. For example, I say to people, imagine I had a passion for motor cars. I so said, I'm gonna be the next big thing after Tesla. I'm gonna bring out a car brand. Well, I better have a vision for that because they've got billions and I don't. So you can, well, how am I gonna reinvent cars with no money, I' right? So you can be crazy about cars, but you're probably not gonna be that guy. So vision means just harnessing that back a little bit and working it out. And action means when you're gonna take action. It doesn't mean when you're gonna open your studio, When you're going to take on the world, when you're going to be, become an actor. It means what are you willing to do today? If you're serious about your passion and vision, then what's your action? Your action is there's 18 hours a day to hear a wait. Most people work eight, maybe 10 hours if you're pushing yourself. That leaves eight hours to, to do what I said before, to get your phone out and Google shit and study things and watch successful people and go to seminars and to learn and to read and to study and to do your investigation, do your, 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 do gil- due diligence of that industry you want to get into. And this is why, for example, I've become obsessed with Instagram. I study it more than I study anything at school. If I'm going to travel, I'll study If I'm going to do a fitness expert, i learn so much more about it than what I need to know, so I'm in a position to win, right? And because, oh, action, you know, I can't start my thing because I don't have the money or the space or the time. Okay, so sit around and watch movies and, you know, play on your phone and gossip. You know, what's the Kardashians? That's gonna get you ahead. Instead, what's Gary Vee? Or what's someone who's just got some answers and some inspiring shit and some great messages? So that's what I mean by action. It means if you guys are serious about doing something for yourself, go home and start today. They go, oh, Monday morning, I'll start my diet. Well, you are gonna go eat chips? Like, it's crazy. When you break it down and understand the psychology of what we do to self-sabotage, it's, 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 it's the reason most people fail.
0: That's actually a great segue into what I wanted to talk about next which was when you do start on that path and I, know I certainly have, have copped it a fair bit uh, as I'm sure you have as well but when you do start on that path and you've got that idea and you, you, you start building it and you become even a little bit successful at it, it does attract a certain amount of negativity and haters. And this is the thing that I find, and it used to affect me a lot more than obviously it does now. Now it's just waters off a, of a duck's back. But in consulting with a lot of trainers from all over, uh, one of their biggest problems and their biggest hurdles uh, to overcome is once they put themselves out, out there, mm. they've become successful, is the cheap shots. And I think, I don't want to say it's, ex- obviously it's only the fitness industry or this kind of thing, but I think the fitness industry in a way has a certain way of doing it to their own that is probably a little bit unique than other industries we, we seem to be very good as a fitness industry to tear each other down rather than build each other up what's been your experience and i suppose uh, how do you handle it
1: my experience has been it's all industries you know no guys in the automotive industry and they're spray painters and they tear other spray painters down it's, it's it's universal it's just we're in this we think it's all about us it's not um so how do i deal about it and it's not to put you down it's just to say just open your mind up it's a universal thing it's just man it's just people, want what they can't have, you know, and they see someone else being successful, so their fallback is to, oh, he got lucky, or he's a prick, or he's a smart ass, or whatever. So how do I deal with it? I don't give a fuck what anyone thinks. I don't respond to anyone. Never, ever should you not do something because of what somebody else thinks. This is what it breaks down to. There's three things that will stop you from succeeding. Self-doubt, fear of failure, and the big one, worrying about what people think. Now, if people are taking cheap shots at you, it means you're doing something right. It can't make everyone happy. And the people that you worry about that are taking the cheap shots don't like you. They want you to fail. And when you do, I said earlier, they're gonna say, Ha, I told you so. And when you win, they're gonna go, oh yeah, but he got lucky. It's only because he met Arnold. It's only because he met Tony. It's only because they went to Wolfpack. You know, people like that, why would you respond to their opinion or let alone adjust your path because of what somebody else thinks. So a cheap shot to me is a, a kind of the lowest form of flattery. It's okay, you bother talking about me means you're obsessed with me. It's like people who watch my page and then leave some dumb comment. I'm like, well, why are you even watching? I don't follow anyone I don't like. That's retarded.
2: <laughs> well, why, would you,
1: why would you follow someone you don't like and then Wait for your moment to give them a cheap shot. <laughs> fuck with?
2: Like, <laughs>
1: would you do that in real life? Would you come up and say that? Or you just, you're as tough as your phone, you know? That's crazy. Excuse me for swearing, but you, you need to sometimes. Yeah. Because this is the sort of behaviour that we're conditioned to believe is important. It's not. So I'm going to go beyond anything. We say, oh, now it's water off a duck's back. Don't give them oxygen. Don't respond. If I'm going to dump comment, delete. Block. If it's weird, block. If it's just dumb, delete. <laughs> don't respond, because once you respond, and once even if somebody attacks you, you start shooting back at them, sending messages, throwing bombs back at them, and then it's just the same as them. And the thing about if someone who doesn't like you or someone who doesn't want to su- su- succeed is the most hurtful thing is to not give them any oxygen. let just pretend they don't exist. Mm. Right? No oxygen means no response. Someone says, oh, what about so-and-so? So oh, I don't know, you do anything next. Don't even talk about them. Give them nothing. It drives them nuts, right? But then don't do stuff to prove, prove people wrong. Do it to prove yourself right because they don't count anyway. So Mark, I've, I've become better and better and better at it. I used to be you know, I wanted to fight, I wanted to fight everyone. Now I'm just like, you know what? i kind of sad for them.
0: When did you transition from that? When did you go from fighting Tony, fist to cuffs to zen like Tony?
1: Oh, uh, it's, it's been a work in progress, you know? Um, Certainly when, when the Arnold thing happened, I knew I had to become a you know, very responsible adult and not um, put myself in a position where I could be in any kind of trouble. Um, probably, oh, I don't know, there's not really one moment. I guess having kids too quieted me down a lot. You know, as the kids started to grow up, I thought, you know, I don't want to be setting a bad example. It's not that I was super violent, but you know, back in the early days with the gyms, it was a pretty tough sort of space, and people would test me out, and I'd respond effectively. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and then yeah, you start putting cameras in and everything's online, we've got to, you know things have changed. But I'm um, a lot more Zen person now because I think the travel's done it. Just accepting the world as it is and people as they are and accepting if someone's got a problem with me, that's their problem, it's not my problem. And caring about, this, this is what i have got to get to you, to understand, um, why would you care about what somebody else thinks? Because it's nothing to do with you, it's actually none of your business. If somebody's focusing on you, and sending hateful messages saying dumb shit or whatever about you, that's got nothing to do with you. Unless you're asked, who, who, who? They don't count. They're not care. they are not going to come here and spend money. They're not gonna come here and support you and your business. They're not gonna come and buy a drink. So why would you care what they think? I care what my customers think. I care what my family thinks. I care what the people that I love think. You know, if I hurt one of them, that's a different story. But if it's just someone who's just thrown um, bombs from afar, ah, next. Yeah, and, and what I've found, this is a funny thing, um, since I've sort of become more well-known or a little bit celebrity status, or, you know, whatever with the Arnold stuff, I've had people that have supported me all through my life who've then jumped off and became like enemies. Like, wow, so you're happy for me to be this big, but anything above that is actually hurtful to you and now you're gonna become this absolutely obsessed and centred with making me fail. I've had some of that. Okay, I'm not gonna stop. I don't really care. You know, um, all my life, people told me that I should oh, you know, calm down, I don't do this. My favorite was, oh, sorry, you're obsessed. Hell yeah. I've met some really successful people with meeting and working with Arnold and some of the celebrities and actors and, and, uh, and elite athletes that I've met. Guess what? Guess what they all got in common? They're all obsessed. I know one, you know, highly successful person that hasn't got that about them. It's what it takes. It's okay. Just we're
0: told, you know, don't be obsessed. That's obsessive. Yeah, no fear. So on, on that, um, So I was just in a moment processing what you were saying. Um,
1: <laughs> just process.
0: You, we, we have some students in the room, students watching, they start a business, they again become successful, they're down the road. They might have one, two, a couple of uh, staff members working for them. You've got six gyms. You've got Arnold Schwarzenegger as your, your business partner. You've got the IFBB Pro League. Uh, you know, they get overwhelmed with, with managing two staff and their sessions. There's a lot of noise I'd imagine in your life, people literally pulling you in every direction that you could probably, and all over the globe, physically as well, not just mentally. What, what tips would you give to, to those who are getting overwhelmed and find themselves, you know, pulling out their hair?
1: Oh, man. Just don't overthink it. Just live in the moment and just do what you do. Sometimes I get like a film crew following me or someone will, like wanna um, ghost me for a day and can just come follow me around. And that's when I feel it. When I see somebody else getting manic about my being manic, you know, Look, you're okay. <laughs> you get pulled in all directions. You go, yeah. You know, like it was um, two days ago, three days ago, I had meetings every single hour and I did a podcast. There was a guy, I didn't even know him. I always say yes to podcasts, you know, why not? It might affect one. person. was a guy who was doing a um, program on mental health. He's a really nice young man. And uh, he got into personal training because he watched my TV show called Muscle TV. And I'd been like his idol all these years. I didn't know that when he reached out. So this was this monumental moment for him to come and do this podcast. And it was all about um, exercise and the value for mental health and stuff. And I got so much out of it, you know, by giving. And, uh, and because of that one, I didn't get to eat. And then I had another meeting, another meeting, and I took all my food to work. It was like three o'clock. I'm like, shit. I trained on an empty stomach this morning. I had a bowl of oatmeal, and I've had like nine meetings and a podcast since three o'clock. And I'm actually lightheaded and and i'm like that's you know anyone watching that go, that's crazy but this is just a normal day and and when you strive for things and you take on more and more tasks one you've got to get more organized like i've just put on a pa for the first time ever like my dad my account everyone say, you need to get an assistant like you're crazy because i say yes I'm, i i say no when i need to say no but if someone just needs a chop out i'm like yeah like you call hey can i come over and see you 10 o'clock Tuesday? yeah come and i don't write it down and then someone says oh can you be somewhere 10 o'clock Tuesday? Sounds like a plan. <laughs> and and there's three people rock up at once and the person at the desk come and there's three people all say they've got a 10 o'clock appointment. Shit, so I have got a PA. And she's amazing, she runs my diary more than anything else. So do that, be organised. But um, you've got to choose what you want to do. So what I'm doing now, I find as I get busier, I get busier. So now I've got three or four other projects and my general manager who runs all the Arnold stuff and a little bit with the Jims who was formerly my producer for the TV show. He's known me for a long, long time and he, he's identified my strengths and weaknesses very, very well. So it's been very helpful to have an objective person you know, that can sort of point that out. And he, and he said to me a few years ago, he goes, you're no good unless you've got some manic, impossible challenge in front of you. Like as soon as you achieve one thing, you're looking for another mad, like another thing. And I know that. So I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool. That's why the Arnold's been good for me, because it's like so massive every year. Um, It curbs it, but I'm doing some, so you talk about the gyms and the pro-league stuff, so all the competitions around Australia. I think I'm running over 20 shows this year around Australia um, and posing clinics and all that sort of thing as a whole. And that's another team of staff I've got working full-time on that. And then there's my personal stuff, so with my relentless momentum talks and I'm writing a stage show to, so you've been to the relentless, the early stage, so phase two, that's gonna be a bigger thing. Like we're talking a little bit about what you are doing earlier and um, we're gonna to go to a bigger audience, it's gonna cost them less, but take it to masses. So I'm working on that, and I'm working on a book, and I'm working on a doco, and a couple of other things, and a new podcast I'm starting. So I've turned 15, uh, 10 businesses into 15 new challenges, and spreading myself thinner and thinner. But I just figured, you know, I wouldn't, if I couldn't, if I wasn't capable of doing it, I wouldn't have thought it up in the first place. So to anyone out there that's struggling with balance and all that, just find something you love doing, and it's not a chance, it's, it's nothing to me. So I just wish I had 28 hours in a day. And I wish there was a pill you could take on an operation you could have so you never have to sleep again. I'd be the first one, man. I'd, do you wanna give any, p- start with me.
0: So um, I wanna give the audience as much of you as possible, and the way I figure yeah, to me. do that is to play the one word game. So if you're not familiar with the one word game, basically I'm gonna give you a word, and you're gonna give me a one max, maybe two to three word response. So for example, if I was to say legs, someone might say squats, right? So it's a word association game. So are you ready? Ready to play? You ready? All right. Australian bodybuilders. Go to
1: the next
0: one. <laughs> uh, Doherty's brand.
1: Home away from home.
0: Uh, the Weekends.
1: No such thing.
0: The greatest bodybuilder of all time. Ronnie Coleman. Greatest sports person of all time.
1: Muhammad Ali. Millennials. Give him a chance.
0: Big box gyms.
1: Nothing, not my world. (laughs)
0: Biggest supplement lie.
1: Take this and you'll look like me.
0: Bodybuilding magazines.
1: Dead, finished, goodbye.
0: The fitness industry.
1: Amazing, wonderful, growing.
0: Personal trainers.
1: Good
0: and bad. Favourite colour? Couldn't give a fuck. <laughs> Good answer. I was expecting like black or steel, metallic. But we'll go with couldn't give a fuck. I hope you got that on camera, right? Um, respected. I
1: think it's a
0: little gay to have a favourite colour. Respected colleague or peer? Favorite motorcycle? Something that pisses you off?
1: Who the chew loudly?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've got another one of those in class at the moment, yeah. yeah. Um, something that you love? Life. Favorite pastime?
1: Training. See, I know. There you go. Uh, a business
0: you like shopping at. Oh,
1: none. Oh, okay. There's this is one shop, sorry, long story, quick answer, Babour. It's a men's clothing shop from London that's in South Africa. And whenever I go there, I'll get enough clothes for a year.
0: It's suits or? No, no, no I've
1: got a suit maker. Um, no, it's just like, you know, just cool shit.
0: A book to read.
1: Shantaram.
0: And finally, uh, favorite Arnold movie?
1: Terminator 2.
0: Oh, nice one. Um, they say that, just to, to, I suppose, wrap up a couple more questions, a few more questions, but they say that the, you, you, you become the product of the five closest people to you. Now, it really doesn't get much bigger than Arnold Schwarzenegger um, in terms of that. So, one, uh, is, that, is that saying true? And two, how has you know, your relationship with Arnold affected you on a personal level?
1: Um, I think it's true to a point. Um, when you've got so many worlds colliding like I do have, there's not really five people. There's five people in each world. So I've got like 10 worlds going on. But the Arnold world has, it has impacted me enormously. Um, being like someone who always had a lot of self-belief and big dreams to start with, when that comes to fruition and your idol becomes your friend, that, that's like the biggest injection of confidence and belief that you could ever have. So that's affected me enormously. It's made me even more believe that I can do anything and be anything. And personally, he's been um, such a great mentor um, with business, with life, with dealing with shit, with personal stuff, um, and just seeing how to, how to act at that next level so when you've just got like a gym or you just work in a shop or something you can be one way and then as you become more of a leader you become a certain way so when i see the greatest leader that i've ever met then that rubs off on me i start seeing traits in him i think okay i need to be more of that so he's taught me without trying to be a teacher he's taught me so much just by being in his presence like he's the most curious person he could ever meet so when we go so we always ask people questions it can be a driver, it can be a chef, it can be a, in an Uber. And uh, he genuinely asks people, you know, where are you from, what's your background? How did you get here? And then remembers it and tells a story later on that night or whatever. And I thought, wow. You know, it's, it, it's really um, great to make feel, people feel important, but as you become more famous or more, you know, you rise in your world, that importance means even more to someone. So it's made me realise, you know, don't just be a dick where people come, say, oh, no, can I get a selfie? Make sure you ask them a question and give a little back because people have done that to me and helped me to elevate. So it's made me want to give back a lot more. You know, when he talks about his six secrets of success, and he says give back, I thought that was about giving money to charity or something. It's not. It's giving back to the human race. So I think um, he's made me, honestly, made me a much better person, much better leader, but probably zen me out a lot as far as just being in that moment of, of giving, you know? long answer, but that's, that's, I hadn't really thought about it, but that's usually where you get your best answers, right?
0: Mm. All right? Well, what I'd love to do now is open up to Wolfpack for questions that you have for Tony. So who would like to pop up their hand and ask Tony a question? Yes, Alan.
2: Um, Tony, after hearing you speak this morning, it's clear that um, you're a man of uh, contribution and what um, you really value, what fitness brings to society, and you're not, clearly just an entrepreneur for the sake of it you actually really do believe in what fitness can bring so with so many things going on um, and you know in in your life and all these different businesses how do you prioritize things like for me for instance I'm coming up to an opportunity where I can work with um, adolescents and victims of crime and and bring fitness to them Um, I value also also value what fitness brings to, to people and, and mental health and stuff, but it may not be uh, the best for my business in, in relation to uh, income and stuff like that. How do you prioritise and how have you prioritised things like that where you feel like you'd get that connection and that fulfilment from it, but, you know, juggling with, uh, like I said, income and all that kind of stuff, um, just basically, you know, choosing the right path and what to chase. Yeah. You
1: know. um. My easy answer to that is I've never been driven by money, which is probably why I'm shit at some of the things I do, like the gyms and expos. I probably could have made more money if I was more financially conscious. So I may be the wrong person to answer this because I think that if if passion's your number one thing, that money will come at some stage. And for example, the first public speaking I ever did was to a group, and I only remember this because I I did a show in a Lumber Theatre in Bendigo a few weeks ago, which was the old Bendigo jail and they just spent these millions of dollars and turned into this beautiful theatre. And um, my first ever public speaking thing, I was 19, I was working in the gym and there was a prison guard there. He said, can you come up and talk about health and fitness to the prisoners? Because they're a bit lost and they need someone like you. And I was really you know, jacked up for a young guy, you know? Just gonna come and talk about bodybuilding and fitness. And I didn't stop and think, oh, I'll have to cancel a client, I'll take a time off work. I thought, what a great opportunity. And I went and did that. And that opened up a world of public speaking. Now, if I had it gone, oh, what about the $20 an hour I just lost? I never would have gone. You know, And there's been times where I've gone and worked, um, for example, uh, next week. Uh, uh, three weeks' time, I'm going, I work backstage with Mr. Olympia doing all the interviews. I've never asked them, should I get paid for that? Because what that does for my profile, and like, I'm a bodybuilding kid, man, from a little country town. I get to stand there, Phil Heath waits for me. This is crazy. I couldn't have thought this shit up because I've never been worried about, about that. So I think when you get an opportunity, you should take it and not even care about the money. You know, and if you can't pay, pay your bills, then you've got to go, okay, I need to back off on the, the giving a little bit and work more on and getting my bills paid. But you never know what opportunity might open up. You know, when I, when I for example, I talked about Muscle TV. So when, when I had an opportunity, to, I wanted to be a TV presenter all my life. I always wanted to be on TV. I still want to be an action movie star. Like my secret to <laughs> Right? And I don't know if it's too late or not, but I'm just keeping it open just in case, because I look like a badass, right? There might be I said to Arnold when you do the next expendables. <laughs> think, about it, think about it. Right? And I've been drinking with Randy Couture, who's also in it. I'm Randy. And I met Stallone, I hey Stallone. I met Hulk Hogan, he, you know, when you need this. So I'm telling all of it. And uh, I'm meeting with the rock next month so I'm gonna say, brother, brother <laughs> Anyway. Beyond that, um where was I with that? Uh, with Muscle TV. So they needed a host and they didn't have any budget. And I said, I'll make it easy for you, I'll do it for free. They go, what? I go, I'll do it for free. And I did a whole season for free. And it took up so much time. I remember the time, my staff and my people said, well, what are you doing that for? You know, like, you gotta have time, we're gonna get someone into the counter. I got because I'm gonna put everyone in Doherty shirts and background, I'm gonna brand, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get something out of it, but short term, don't worry about the money because I wanted to be a TV presenter and I couldn't afford at the time to go to, if there was a school or a university for TV presenters, I, would, I couldn't afford to, to rent the car space. I couldn't afford to park my car if I had a car, let alone be a TV presenter. So I did it for free and then the next season, come on, go and do it for free again. And it became very successful and it gave me a little bit of money, but it was never a whole lot of money. Then I became the weights coach at the Carlton Football Club, which I loved all my life. And the pay was terrible and had to go there three times a week, take time off from the gym. And it was when the club was broke, they didn't have a big budget. You know, we were getting like 10 grand, a new guy came in after us and got 300, because money became, but whatever. I never did it for the money. But what that did for my profile, and what that did for my media, and what that did for me, running onto the MCG with the players, you know, uh, some stuff I never could have imagined. So I'd say, man, take your opportunities. Don't ever say no to anything. Who knows what it might lead to? And then then if it's costing you money, back off, but I hope that is a good answer.
2: Can you just repeat what your favourite book was?
1: Uh, Shantaram. It was by a um, Gregory David Roberts, I think. You nodded your head, yeah. It's about an Australian guy who was a heroin addict (laughs) bank robber who um, broke out of prison and went to India and reinvented himself and became like a medic in the slums in Mumbai. And it's an incredible story of, um, it's a very spiritual book um, where he goes into the hills in Afghanistan as a freedom fighter, it's this crazy story, it's a mostly true story. And the way he writes, he talks about the lessons he learns from the elders in the hills and the people in the slums, it probably gave me a fascination of travel and some Indian stuff and and all that. You read it? Amazing, huh? What a story man, what a trip, It's, it's just a really good book. I was gonna say Arnold's biography, I thought it was too cliche, but um, as a book, uh, I've never read a fiction book in my whole life. That one's probably a little bit fiction, but you know, it's it's this guy's biography. And it it was a Melbourne guy, he escaped from Pentridge. Yeah, Um, Shantar, Yeah, yeah,
0: amazing. One more question if we have it. Uh, When you're talking about when you were doing the speaking for free on Muscle TV and then looking at putting Doherty shirts and so forth in the background and so forth, uh, combining the run for the kids with the Arnold Classic. How do you th- find that way of lateral thinking where you, where you find that opportunity where a lot of us would just be focused solely on that event or getting that specific thing running? How do you d- have that... I don't. I don't want to call it foresight, but that thought of lateral thinking to That's be able to draw man. that in. I don't
1: know how I've got it. I've never thought about it, but I'm. I'm thinking all the time. I don't stop. And life's just told me, what else is there? You know, it's. It's just a way of thinking. It's a way of life, and I've never been any different. You know, I'm always just thinking beyond the square, and I'm always thinking psychology. Something. Okay, I'm doing this for free, but is there an angle? Is there something I can do to promote or to get the message to more people? Is there? Even when I do my real talk, even though it's spontaneous and it's action and it's live, there's so much psychology goes into it. Even when I do this stuff, even when I do a talk, um, I'm thinking about, uh, it's hard to describe. Um, So, it's not really how do I think, I just say, if you don't think that way, open your mind up, always just, just look beyond. Don't be driven just by the money and the aspect, okay, if I'm in this space, what else can I do? Like when I travel, for example, and I might be in Brazil. So I won't just go to all the top restaurants that we're eating at. I'll find out where the locals eat and I'll find out what the locals do. And I'll get a day of myself and I'll buzz off somewhere else. I just always just think, what else? What else, what else is there? Yeah, I wish I'd give you a better answer, but I don't know. I'd probably have to be examined by a psychologist to find that out. Can imagine that, the poor, poor person doing that interview. Um, yeah, man, but I just think, You've gotta be, look, I've always been more of an opportunist than a planner. I think that's probably the best answer. Some people, they just plan and plan and plan. Well, life's gonna kick you in the balls and go upside down, so don't overplan anything because you don't know. But if you're an opportunist and you're ready for every opportunity and you live in the moment, then you can just be free just to think, okay, what else, you know? Final thoughts, Tony? Like for example, here's one. How many of you guys don't follow me on Instagram? Tony Doherty Oz, OZ. There you go, I just got 10 new followers. <laughs> You know, just little things like that. So um, final thoughts, oh man, I could talk. This is the thing. <laughs> yeah, everyone's got um, something they can do. I've always, um, I was thinking about driving across here, you know, I was gonna do a little story and then I didn't, so I shouldn't do stories while I drive because I always get some ambulance driver or something message me, go, you shouldn't be doing that when you're driving. I just had a really good thought. Anyway, um, I was thinking driving over here that, you know, you've got to use what you've got. You've got to work out your point of difference and what your skill is. You know, like you hear about famous boxers, they say, yeah, my fists got me out of this situation I was in. My fists took me somewhere. Or a great soccer player, yeah, my feet took me to great heights. Or my ball skills or my reflexes. For me, it's been my voice. I've always had this ability to talk and to translate and to... Even now, I'm like the... um, the concierge of people. If people have a fallout, I can put them back together. If people haven't spoken for years, and I've done this with people in the bodybuilding organisation to bring them together and to build bridges and just to be able to talk and have some psychology of, of speech. Um, so I have seen about it today that you've got to kind of find out what your thing is and get even better at it and to use it. So mine's always just been able to relate to people and to talk and to know what the temperature is in a room and to go in and to you know, to execute or to back off or just to to know that. So I think, um, back to your question, I think if you're in that space and you know who you are and what you've got, then you can just see more opportunities than anyone else may do. Uh, final thoughts, Mark. Um, let's go back to what I talked about earlier. Just don't let other people rain on your shit, you know, like if you've got an idea and an ideal and a vision and a passion to do something, please, please don't let other people talk you down or talk you out of it because you're just gonna end up like them. And people often say, when well, I've done my relentless talks, and big question is, um, what's your greatest fear? Or why are you the way you are? And I've had to really think about that and I'll tell you what it is. The only fear I have is regret. The only fear I've got is getting old and we're all gonna die one day. And when you're on your deathbed, or it happens suddenly, whatever, you'd hate to think, oh, gee, I wish I had have tried a bit harder, had have backed myself, had have had more self-belief, had have taken a risk. That to me, is, that's the scariest thought in the world is to know that you wasted your life. Cause I'm not, a, I don't know, is there anything else out there? I don't know. It's got religious, I don't wanna get religious about it, but if there's nothing else, that means you got one life and, and, and you know, one of my Real Talk spots, I walk through a graveyard and I always say, look at all these people, they're all dead. And everybody here died, but how many really lived? And I suggest it's, it's, in, it's, it's in the single digits as a percentage. You know, that most people just um, uh, fall into the trap of complacency. They play it safe because that's what society tells them they should do. Have security, have safety, you know, just be normal. And if that's not for you, then keep fighting. Otherwise, you're just gonna get old and look back and go, oh yeah, I had my shot and I didn't take it. Take your chances. You know, even if it fails, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Because at least you go, well, at, least I, at least I know, you know. So I think that, don't yeah. hold back and don't be, don't be uh, controlled by other people's thoughts and fears and inadequacies because you know, they're everywhere.
0: And where can people continue to follow you?
1: Instagram's easiest. Tony Doherty Oz. That's O Z. Tony Doherty, one word, Oz. And, um, and, and you can message me there. Don't message me on Facebook. I hate it. I told you that the other day. Because I get messages on Snapchat, Instagram, text, email, phone, text, and Messenger and Insta. And I try and answer, but for some reason, Messenger on Facebook pisses me off. I don't know why. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I dele- I've deleted it off my phone, actually. Yeah,
1: Instagram's the easiest yeah. way to find me. And if, if I'm not like, if we're not connected, it goes into another folder, but once a week I check that and get back to everyone. So um, yeah, I'll just, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm a very public, open person, but um, yeah, I'd appreciate you following that. And if you enjoy it, spread the word, um, but there'll be something there for everyone and it's
0: free. Amazing interview there with Tony Doherty. I uh, hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wolf's Stand with Tony Doherty. Do check him out on Instagram. Let's give Tony a round of applause. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you and stay tuned for our next episode with andrew locke make sure you subscribe to us on youtube and check us out enterprise fitness on instagram see you soon